everybody, we've got cows. Welcome to the Film Cafeteria. I'm Scott. And I'm Brittany. And today we are talking 1996's Jan de Bont masterpiece of sorts, Twister. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the kind of impetus of this episode was that we recently rewatched Twister. It was toward the end of the summer months. Yeah. It was kind of like a rainy day. Mm-hmm. And we were looking for something to watch, and that was what we put on. And then we ended up just getting like completely sucked into it. <laughs> Got really, really into it. It ended, and then that started this journey of us looking for similar movies that we could watch that would give us the same <laughs> excitement and feeling as Twister. Yeah, we were on a nostalgia trip. We were. It started as a nostalgia trip. <laughs> <laughs> we looked for a, a like. We watched a number of movies, some of which we will uh, cover, and then some. I guess we'll just kind of mention, like in the periphery. Yeah. But uh, we're gonna uh, after talking about Twister, cover six in particular um, that we went back to that we had varying degrees of uh, excitement for, but. Um, <laughs> That's kind of what we have on the agenda for today. Yes. So. A little bit of old mixed with some of the new. Yeah. Yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> Although, like, when I'm looking back through it, I realize this one is mostly just going to be old. Yeah. But that's, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited for this one. Um, yeah, so let's get into it. Yeah. So Twister, uh, released in 1996, mm-hmm. directed by Jan de Bont. Um, Jan de Bont, <laughs> absolute nutcase. Um, he, he had just come off of doing Speed, yeah. was looking to do something else, and, and was attached to the Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie for a little bit. Well, what became the Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie for a little bit, and then ended up leaving that after Steven Spielberg left this, left the, the Twister project because he was originally going to direct it. And then Jan de Bont kind of came into it and wound up taking it over and led all of the troops like a nutcase. <laughs> Apparently um, singed the eyeballs of Helen Hunt and uh, Bill Paxton at one point Yeah, with... Uh, a lighting rig that he had <laughs> set up there. Apparently the, the crew absolutely lost their mind working with him. Mm-hmm. At one point, like half of the camera, well, like the entire camera crew walked off. Mm-hmm. Then they brought in a um, new camera crew and the new camera crew was equally displeased with him, but he uh, famously uh, uh, had, well, I guess somebody on the crew mistimed uh the, it was the scene at the end where the they're trying to rescue Meg and the dog. Okay. And they mistimed something with the house, and the house collapsed on the new cinematographer's head. Oh no! <laughs> then I guess uh, uh, Jan kind of uh, wound up doing the photography himself for the rest of the movie, just to, to finish it out. And uh, I don't know. It was the guy is an absolute nutcase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, he he did a good job with it because we obviously really really got into this movie when we were watching it. Yeah, it was it was a fun ride. Yeah, yeah. 
like a roller coaster. Yeah. Like at Universal Studios. (laughs) (laughs) Which they eventually did for a while. Yes. (laughs) Before that was, I guess, like shut down recently. They shut it down. They replaced it with a a Jimmy Fallon ride. No. Okay. I was. It was in like 2015 or something like that. So that was like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least we find that ride. Yeah. You know, in the case of the movie Twister, just go back. Yeah. You know, watch the movie. Yeah. There's your ride. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, then that leads us also into the writers. Yeah. Um, Michael Crichton, Mm -hmm. as well as um, Anne Marie Martin. Yeah. Who's like his wife? Yeah, that's his wife. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Crichton actually passed away in 2008, but he was an author and filmmaker. Uh-huh. Who wrote like over twenty six novels, uh-huh. and was a screenwriter on many movies and TV shows. Uh-huh. I mean, one of his major TV shows that he was actually the creator of was actually ER. Uh, so I yeah. found that interesting. Yeah, yeah. And he also did the uh, novel of Jurassic Park uh-huh. and uh, Jurassic Park: The Lost World. Uh-huh. So. Uh, he also he did a movie. It was like I think kind of like late seventies. Mm-hmm. Called the Sentinel that he yeah, the directed. Sentinel. That yes. was really, really good. That's yeah. like one of those movies that, if anybody ever wants to like check out, just a weird '70s sci-fi <laughs> horror movie. Check out the Sentinel. That was a really, really cool movie. Yeah. And you said that was in the '70s. Yeah, it was like kind of like late '70s. Is and it the Terminal? So the the Terminal was the Tom Hanks. Oh. No, but there's a 1972 version of. Oh, I, a I movie don't, called the Terminal. Oh, okay. I don't know that movie. <laughs> I thought you were talking about that. No, uh, I no, I don't know the the seventy eight movie or okay. seventy two movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was awesome. And his wife, on also uh, a little fun little fact right here, was um, his wife was actually one of kind of like a screen queen a little bit. She mm-hmm. starred in a uh, prom night oh, in nineteen eighty. The Jamie Lee Curtis movie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So I thought that was interesting to find out about both writers. Yeah. <laughs> for Twister. <laughs> so if anybody would know, you know, that kind of fun little, you know, ride or fun entertainment in a movie, it would be the two of them. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they did a very good job of pulling all the characters together. And of course, like the cast, the lineup embodying those characters was phenomenal. Yes. And um, in particular, of course, Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt. Who were originally supposed to be played by Tom Hanks and Laura Dern. Yes. And then both of them were like, no, for various reasons. Yeah. I think Tom Hanks went and wrote and directed. Um, a, he, I think it was like the first movie that he wrote and directed. It was uh, uh, That Thing You Do. Mm-hmm. Which interesting, interestingly was um, produced by uh, uh, Gary Getzman and... and um, Jonathan Demme and Gary Getzman. Jonathan Demme both factor into kind of what our what we're talking about with our next episode. Oh, that's awesome. But, <laughs> but um, I guess pa- Paxton got the role because of his work on with Hanks on Apollo 13. But mm-hmm. having them come in, then like also like all the side characters that Crichton and, and Anne-Marie came up with were just phenomenal. Yes. They really like filled the movie out in such a great way. Especially and, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Phil Hoffman, in the movie, like, you know, and I, you know, I think back on it, and I want, I actually wonder if I think that might have been the first thing I ever saw him in. 
really i'm not sure if that's the first thing i saw him in even though it probably should have been but i or should i say it's not the first thing i recognized him in uh-huh. so it may be, have been yeah. the first thing i saw him in but i don't think that was the first thing i recognized him in i think that was because of it was the the you know like some of the stuff that he said that became so kind of iconic in the movie yeah. in particular like loser loser yeah. like that whole entire thing it's like there were certain things that that he was doing in that movie that i remember just kind of sticking in my head Mm -hmm. but i'm trying to remember if i actually had seen because i know that you know like almost famous was another movie because of course like when twister came out i didn't see it in the theater yeah and i didn't really get that i didn't really see it until it was you know on tv all the time and just became like kind of wallpaper yeah i think i rented it from blockbuster Mm -hmm. when i was younger I think that's what how we saw it. It's like I think we rented it because I don't remember seeing it in theaters either. Even though we were a big mm-hmm. like, let's go to the theater like family. Like, yeah, yeah. Whenever there was a good movie, like we, my dad and my mom would actually take mm-hmm. us because I remember seeing like it's so weird, but I remember seeing like Wild Wild West, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. remake mm-hmm. with Will Smith in it. Yeah. I remember seeing like that in theaters as well as um, like Lion King when it first came out. I remember all those things, yeah. but I don't remember Twister. So I'm like, I don't think I saw that because I don't remember it. Mostly all the movies that I remember seeing in theater, like it's really fresh in my mind for some reason, but that yeah. one isn't. So that tells me that I might not have seen that one in theater. Yeah, like because for me, so when this movie came out, I would have been five going on six years old. My brother is nine years older than me, probably most definitively saw this movie in the theater. <laughs> yes. Um, because, you know, of course, we were a big theater family also, but since there was that gap in age, he yeah. was seeing movies like Twister while I was seeing stuff like The Lion King and whatnot. Yeah. So, I don't, I know for a fact I didn't see this in a theater. I know that they didn't cart me in <laughs> to watch this one, because that didn't really start until, like, around, like, seven or so, unless we were out of town, yeah. where they would just kind of, like, cart me into something that I probably shouldn't have been in. Yeah. And, but, like, um... You don't think you should have been in Twister? You... I I think that likely I would have enjoyed it, because by the time I saw it, I was probably, like, about 10 or 11, and I loved it. Okay. But I, I just don't... I don't know if, like, it would have been... I was also, like, kind of a kid that got freaked out really easily oh, really? by stuff. <laughs> <laughs> because, like... I remember we went to see, and I don't remember what year that movie came out, but I remember my dad took us to see um, Batman Forever uh-huh. at, like, the midnight show. Mm-hmm. And at the very beginning of the movie, they, like, blew something up. It was, and in retrospect, it was like they they shot off, like, a little smoke bomb or something. Like, something <laughs> yeah. really, really simple. But they, like, shot off, like, a little smoke bomb, and a guy dressed like Batman and a guy dressed like Robin in like party city style rubber suits yeah came running up the aisle and the whole theater started cheering of course they don't do anything like this now because like that was like a time where it was just an amc and some people were probably like drunk or stoned in the back and we're like dude let's dress up like batman and robin and run through the theater yeah having worked at a theater (laughs) we now kind of know how that probably went yeah and 
I'm pretty sure that was not studio promotion or anything. That was literally just, just like some random just, people. Just a couple of theater employees that were kind of bored and we're just like, dude, let's do this. this be, and we're probably really excited for a new Batman movie mm-hmm. since this was well before the comic book movie craze. Mm-hmm. And when that little smoke bomb went off and they ran through the theater, that just like really freaked me out. And my dad was <laughs> like, I'm taking you home. Really? Because like. For me, that was like, okay, the people in the movie are not supposed to come out of the movie. <laughs> it's a wire That just here. happened. <laughs> so God knows what else is going to happen tonight. <laughs> we need to get out of here, man. Like, now. That's That's <laughs> so, funny. like, I don't really know, like, at that time if this would have been something that they would have been willing to take me to regardless. But, like, I know when I finally did watch it on TV or whatever yeah. that, like, Phil Hoffman was somebody who really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. And of course, he would then, as the years went on, really stand out to me more and more and more and more. But I don't think I had seen, because he was in, I think it was like Scent of a Woman, yeah. in a small role. I, I know I hadn't seen Almost Famous yet. Or Boogie Nights. Uh, yeah, no. I, I knew what Boogie Nights was. Yeah. To an extent. Mm-hmm. I knew it was a movie that I was not supposed to see. Yeah. Because I remember some people over talking to my parents about it. Mm-hmm. And I remember the reaction from my parents kind of like, they did what? <laughs> but And I knew the cover. But I hadn't seen the movie yet. Because I remember that the cover, which the original cover is that black poster with like the star. Yeah. With all of the characters inside of it. Yeah. And I remember when I saw the poster, I was like, I don't know how the hell they're getting this, this crazy movie out of there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like I hadn't really seen him much else, but he was just so phenomenal in yeah. Twister. And mm-hmm. he really he, like it was you know him, I mean we also had Jeremy Davies who's in there. Yes. Who every single time we see him we call him out. Yeah. And uh another guy who like I don't really know when the first time I saw him was. Mm-hmm. But it was likely that movie. It was likely Twister, because I hadn't seen Spanking the Monkey yet, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, of course, like, um, Alan Ruck, who we know all too well. Yes. As Cameron. Yes. <laughs> and uh, just will forever be Cameron in my mind, no yes. matter what. Like... <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, even some of, like, the, the other people that just kind of show up, like, in kind of cursory roles. Like, you had, like, Anthony Rapp was, like, the voice yeah. of the, the bad guys. Um like that was in the bad guy's headphones throughout mm-hmm. it. I, you know, bad guy in big quotes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, uh, yeah, as much as he can be a bad guy. Yeah, like the, the semi. <laughs> the rival. The rival we team. Can call it the yeah, rival the team. Yes. Guy, you know, led by <laughs> Carrie Elways. Like, it's like, that was kind of the closest you can get to a villain. I guess that was like one of the other interesting things is the fact that it is a very intense movie in which there's no traditional central villain no like it's just the the mon- but it is kind of a monster movie yeah on in some ways mm-hmm. they even kind of play with kind of the notion that it's sort of it's sort of a horror movie that's not quite a horror movie with them watching the the shining yeah. at the you know drive-in. Uh, at the drive-in and it feels very very consciously referential to like we're we're kind of doing a monster movie but we're not really yeah in the same way that you know the shining is kind of kubrick going sort of making a horror movie but not not really yeah like it's it's a little bit more than that yeah and i thought they just did a very very good job with 
doing that like kind of similar thing with Twister and mm-hmm. that like it's it's sort of this thing but it's not really mm-hmm. and that cast definitely kind of like really kind of pulled that off in the sense that there is this level of tension that's there with them for the whole entire movie. I know. Let's talk about that look. <laughs> the look. <laughs> um, yeah, because there's... With Helen Hunt. There is the... There's definitely tension abounds in the movie because yeah. it's... There is the tension of the impending storm, literally, yes. in this case. And then there's tremendous sexual tension between yes. Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton. Mm-hmm. And... Specifically, the a moment that we both called out was when they were at the table. Yeah, at her aunt's at house, Lois Smith's house. Yeah, and they're they're all uh, you know, like getting food and everything. Uh-huh. They're starting some some wasn't it like steak and, steak and eggs. eggs? Yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and like as they're getting their steak and eggs and everything, they're they're kind of um. Reminiscing. Reminiscing and talking a little bit to Jamie Gertz, who's amazing in the movie, mm-hmm. and uh, explained to her how Bill Paxson's character received the nickname of The Danger. Mm-hmm. And then Helen Hunt kind of walks into the other room and kind of turns around and gives him this like very, very, very sexy look. I don't the, know what that look was. Was it sexy? I, I don't know. Don't it was know. sexy to me as yeah. seeing Helen Hunt give that look. But it definitely was a, a, a look that was filled with a lot of mystery. Yeah. I mean, I would agree just because the way she just looked back, I don't, like, I'm still trying to figure out if that was more of a look of, like, her just going back of nostalgia herself uh-huh. About like how he used to be at that table with her before yeah, their yeah. separation. Yeah. Or was it more of a sad thing? Like I can't believe like I would see him again sitting in this house in that table, but with someone else. Yeah. Like I just couldn't figure out what that look meant. Yeah. You know what's interesting is that when we were watching it, I took it more of that first one mm-hmm. as kind of like you know reminiscing and almost feeling like everything is back to normal, but there's still something slightly yeah. just not right about it. And yeah. that sadness that's kind of underlining that moment where she's kind of looking over at him and is like, you know, I still love you. Yeah. And I, I remember the last time that you were sitting here in this way, but like, man, this isn't real. Like, you know, it's yeah. it's almost kind of like a mixture of those two things. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I definitely saw it more as the first, like that the, the first thing, like the first, you know, when we were watching it, the, that first time we got really hooked into it and then as we've as time has kind of gone and we were preparing for the episode and everything i started thinking about it more as that kind of second thing mm-hmm. of kind of like you know almost like she was really really hoping that you know they would be able to get back to this place but now he's here with this other woman yeah and it's just not the same anymore and maybe there was a part of her too that you can tell Maybe the reason why she was looking like that was because of everyone else. How mm. well that when he reincorporated himself into the group, mm-hmm. like everybody just fell so naturally back in step with him. Yep. So it, that was a weird thing, yeah. I mm-hmm. think, too, that she noticed when she looked mm-hmm. back, when she gave that classic look. And it was also a thing, too. Not only did everybody fall so quickly and back into step with him, they were also so quick to embrace 
his new girl. Yeah. Well, because and they had no part in no exactly that. So why would you want to react in that way? Oh know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it was it was almost interesting in the way that and there's what I liked about the way that they structured that crew. Mm-hmm. And you know you have all of these different personalities. Then that one moment at that table, you get to see all of them kind of colliding. Yeah. In a really, really wonderful way. Because when we first meet them, it's like the Eric Clapton motherless child video <laughs> and Phil Hoffman with the hat. Mm-hmm. And like he's got like the raincoat hanging off of his head, you know, but like like trailing behind him like a yeah. kid. And then you kind of meet everybody else kind of piece by piece and yes. you get a sense of who they are. You know, like one of the other people we forgot to mention was kind of Todd Field, who just did Tar that just yes. came out that is in a lot of conversation right now around the Oscar this mm-hmm. year. It seems like that and the Banshees of Anna Sheeran are two movies that everybody's kind of pointing to. But like, you know, you kind of meet everybody like in pieces but then you don't really actually get that dynamic of them in full until they're at that table. Yeah. Because now all of a sudden it's not everybody shouting over a radio. It's not everybody on the road, like kind of fighting with the rivals. Yeah, it's, chasing the tornado. Yeah, chasing this tornado. <laughs> it's literally like everybody's just hanging out and you get this real sense of them as a crew. Mm-hmm. And it is almost like a bunch of kids excitedly telling this new person that just got introduced. Mm-hmm about all of their crazy stories. Yeah. And the guy who has some of the craziest stories is, of course, Bill Paxton. Yeah. And I love that, like, they they still kind of, it, you know, that whole entire scene could have gone on for, like, 40 minutes mm-hmm. and been a really, really oh, cool, yeah. like, John Cassavetes-esque yeah. kind of scene. Yeah. And instead... I mean, if you really think about it, too, it reminds me of uh, Osage County. August Osage County. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because you remember a yeah. lot of that story took place right in that house kind of yeah. at their yep. table. Mm-hmm. So it kind of gave that mm-hmm. sort of feeling to it as well. Yeah, it did. And it because it, August Osage County is a great play by Tracy Letts. They mm-hmm. got turned into a decent movie. Mm-hmm. Like a movie I wish was better than what it actually <laughs> is. But it, it's but it had still, great, a great cast. It had a really, really great cast. And I... I think it's on Netflix, so I'm tempted to rewatch it yeah. at some point. And I really, really love Tracy Letts as a playwright. But yes. I, I do think that there were elements of that movie that could have been better. But, like, I don't know. It was still an interesting movie. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's also it's a very, very, very Midwestern story. And in a lot of ways, that's the thing that's kind of really fascinating about going back to Twister is that it is a very, very Midwestern story. And... Most in within American filmmaking, most of our like Midwestern stories, so to speak, are kind of Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, which I love. I absolutely adore. Yeah. But like a lot of times when you talk about Midwestern stories, you do immediately think about Fargo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like that's kind or of a serious a, man or a serious man. You remember which at the yeah. end there is a tornado. <laughs> There's a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> course that is an interpretive tornado yeah, of but course <laughs> but we could physically like you know yeah absolutely <laughs> but like we don't really have this and you know i mean to me one of the best midwestern stories ever done was um by david lynch which was one of his also most underseen movies a movie called the straight story 
yeah. which features in its lead uh, Richard Farnsworth, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. But um, watching Twister, that was one of the fascinating things to me about it was realizing, I was like, we don't really have a lot of Midwestern stories mm-hmm. within American cinema. This is one of the rare ones, and, and August Osage County is another one. Yeah. And so it is kind of funny that like Twister could very easily have become, we're chasing a tornado at the beginning, there's maybe a tornado at the end, but the whole middle of this movie is just going to be a bunch of people sitting around a table talking. Yeah. You could have very easily made that movie out of that, yeah. which is really fascinating that that was such a core scene. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I mean, of course, that was also when we realized that the guy that we see get taken away from the tornado in the beginning and yes. the little girl who saw that happen was Helen Hunt. Yeah. And that was the one person who has seen a Category 5. Yep, yep. And that was one of those things that I definitely did not understand for a very long time as like a kid. Oh, yeah. And so it was when we were going back rewatching it, that felt like something brand new to me. Because I was like, oh, that's yeah, right. That I remember because you of... did ask me. You was like, wait, I'm not under... You were like, okay, was that the... Pr-? I was like, yeah, that was her in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. why Bill Paxton brings up, you know, her still yeah. chasing that and still trying to almost chase mm-hmm. it because of what happened to her father. Yeah. So you can tell that that was part of it. It was letting you know from the beginning, yeah. like, this is the reason why she chased these it, tornadoes. It was, it was really cool going back to that. I think that's one of the reasons why we got so sucked into it. First of all, I think one of the biggest reasons was because the day that we watched it was a lot like today. Yeah. Where, where it was kind of cloudy. Today is like a very overcast day. It's yeah. been raining a little bit off and on. Yeah occasionally we get about 10 seconds of sun and then it, and then like a bird chirps and then it goes back away. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is fall weather. I mean. <laughs> and we got this exact same kind of day right at the tail end of summer and put this movie on. Yeah. And it was the perfect day to watch it. Oh, it was. And it was the first 10 minutes was kind of like, Oh yeah, twisters on. And I also need to respond to an email. But then it became a vibe, man. But then, like, <laughs> it was kind of this thing where it, it was the moment when um, Bill Paxton runs up to the rivals. He's like, you stole her, didn't you? You son of a bitch. You stole Dorothy. And they get into that fight right there. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I was like, I don't really need to respond to an email. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. I was just kind of in it because it was a movie that I felt like I knew, like, the back of my hand. And then when you rewatched it, you didn't. Rewatching it, I realized that like it's one of those movies that I've a lot like another movie we're gonna talk about later, Shawshank, mm-hmm. that is a movie that really definitely felt like I had I know this movie by heart. And then rewatching it, I realized I was like, I think I've seen this movie front to back maybe like three times in my life. Yeah. Like in terms of I put it on and I consciously watched it from beginning to end. Yeah. But I know every single scene. I just don't always remember the order. Yeah. And so also watching it again, I was like, ah, oh, you know what? I never, I don't remember the movie well enough to have ever put together that the scene where the guy gets pulled away. Cause honestly, when I think back on that movie, I remember that happening way later in the movie. Oh, dude. the opening scene. I yeah. remember it happening at the time when they're at the movie theater. Yeah. So also when we were watching it, it was kind of weird to me. Cause I was like, I didn't realize they foreshadowed that later scene in this movie. Yeah. And then we got to dinner table. I was like, Oh no, that was actually okay. Yeah. I don't know this movie that well. <laughs> like yeah. In my head, I knew it really well. Yeah. And in reality I didn't, but that's kind of a testament also to how much of a classic it is. Mm-hmm. This is kind of like a thing where like, you know, you can talk to people about a movie like the Godfather 
everybody knows about Sonny dying. Yeah. But so many people forget how he actually factors in to actually get killed. Yeah. At that, at the, 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 uh, um, toll booth. Uh huh. And I was like, so many people forget about that. Mm -hmm. So many people forget about all of these little elements of all these classic movies because of the fact that it does just kind of become background for so many events in your life that you know the movie, but you realize like, I don't actually know it that well. I don't actually know it cover to cover the way I do some of my favorite movies yeah. or movies I've obsessed over, but I can still talk about the movie in any environment because I know it seems yeah. so well. And the way it may, like the way it makes you feel as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Cause like going back to the movie, like how did you feel like just kind of revisiting again? I thought it was cool. Yeah. And it felt just like it did the first time. It was a ride yeah. for me. That's what it felt like. Because when I was growing up, I I was this I was very much a thrill seeker. So it was yeah. that kind of thing where I I love roller coaster rides. Mm -hmm. I love going to Six Flags and trying to get on every ride that I possibly could. Sure. Two and three times. Mm -hmm. You know? And even when I was little, I remember like there were times where I tried to be a little daredevil. Where, like, I would actually, like, get on a bike and jump over a hill. But I was, mm. like, eight years old trying to copy my brothers and their friends. And yeah. trying to learn how to do a backer flip. And one time I, like, fell on my face. Like, yeah. I don't know. So it just reminded, it took me back to those kind of memories, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually what the movie made me do. So yeah. it was a, it was very nostalgic for me. It was. And I, I think one of the other really smart things about the movie is that it's gripping and intense, but it's not heavy. Yeah. You know, there's there's heavy stuff in it. But it's not, it's not weighty. No. It no. isn't really like, and you know, we mentioned Boogie Nights, and I adore Boogie Nights. Mm -hmm. The last hour of Boogie Nights is always kind of like, oh yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Cocaine hurts. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, that's always the last hour of that movie. Is, yeah. it, even like something like, you know, Goodfellas, another 90s kind of classic that yeah. was definitely part of you know, the, like, any environment that I was in, like, those movies are movies that you look back on, and they're, they're really, really fun movies. Yeah. But then they get really, really heavy. Yeah. And what was amazing going back to Twister was realizing, like, oh, yeah, it is kind of in that Jurassic Park, Spielberg-esque kind of realm, and, of course, he also, Spielberg still maintained, you know, role as a producer in the movies. So I'm sure that he had a little bit to do with that to some degree. Yeah. But, like... It, you know, it, it does have that thing where it's like it never really tries to get too heavy at any point. And yeah. so even when you're dealing with Helen Hunt and, and yeah. her dad and all that stuff. And Bill Paxton and the divorce. Because remember yeah. the whole point, at least from Bill Paxton's point of view, yep. <laughs> which in the movie his name was Bill. Yeah. From his yeah. point of view, like she was still holding on to those things which caused their relationship to have a rift. Yep, yep. I mean, their relationship was a tornado itself to it was. him. Yeah. And that's what made him leave. Yeah. So that's, if you can incorporate it, it was, I mean, it can be deep if you're looking for those Absolutely, things. Absolutely, yeah. But it doesn't have to be. That's yeah. the beauty of it. Like, you can just have fun watching it. Absolutely. Because, like, at no point does it really get, like, you know, like I said, like, it doesn't really ever get heavy. No. It, it just kind of, it, even, like, when you're dealing with their divorce, like you said, there's a lot there to deal with. There's even more there to deal with once Jamie Gertz winds up admitting 
Yeah. That she thought that when he was talking about chasing storms, it was a metaphor. Yeah. Because she was a psychiatrist. Now, and that's what made me wonder, what kind of psychiatrist are you? Because when someone says something, do you always take everything figuratively? Because why didn't you just ask? Like, what does that mean to you when you say, I'm chasing storms or I'm a tornado chasing? Like, what does that mean to you? The thing that's hilarious to me is the entire idea that they probably had numerous arguments or nights <laughs> that they sat up trying to talk stuff out between the two of them. No, I or don't Or maybe think so. even like nights where it was like so. they were kind of like, you know, like just getting to know each other no, or whatever you know it was. What's so funny? And <laughs> that's the part I feel like was missing in their relationship. That's yeah. why she took it figuratively. Yeah. Because I think that's the part that was missing. They hadn't yet had a fight. Yeah, they yeah, hadn't yeah. yet dealt with the deeper things, but yeah. yet they were getting married. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I think that's what led to them like <laughs> splitting at the end yeah. like that's what led to it they well, didn't have that yet <laughs> one, one of the things that i thought was so funny was that you you get this sense that like even if they hadn't have had a fight that they had a lot of very very long conversations yes yeah, because it was her trying to analyze to, him probably getting to know, know each other where he was probably honestly telling her like <laughs> we were chasing this one cat three one time and i i just ran in there like you know Right into the eye of the storm. Right into the eye of the storm. And she was probably like looking at him like, wow, that must have been a really difficult time with you and your ex. And she's just not even registering. Like, no, this dude literally ran to like a category three storm. Yeah. That's actually the other thing I really liked about this movie. And like, I've heard people talking about this with other movies before. But this was definitely another one that kind of fits this for me. This is definitely one of those movies where by the the end of it, you really feel like you know tornado jargon. <laughs> just because it's, it's people just throwing out tornado jargon throughout yes. like the whole thing. Everybody's like, yeah, you know, we got this F5 over here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you, you really feel like you know something about the, <laughs> about like the scientific side of the weather. Like yeah. immediately after you're done with the movie and then like a couple of days later when you're talking about it, you're like, I don't know anything about the yeah, weather. Yeah, I don't know what that means. But it definitely, <laughs> it brings you in in that way. And the, mm-hmm. like, because there's so much jargon that's used, but it's so smartly constructed by Michael Crichton and, mm-hmm. and um, Anne-Marie that it's like they... They construct in a way where even when they're using jargon, you know every single thing that they're talking about. Yeah. And so you're like, oh, man, yeah. Yeah, because they don't make it complicated. That's <laughs> that, that's what that plays off of what you said. Like, the movie's not heavy. Yeah. It's it's laid out right there for you. Yep. It's not too heady for you. So like, Absolutely. And it, it's like, that was one of those things I love, though, is I definitely walked out of that movie feeling like I knew a lot about the weather. <laughs> Even though I don't, I don't know anything about, like, I know when it rains. I mean, I still to this day don't care. That's, yeah. I mean, I never cared about stuff like that. But it's it's fun and interesting when I see people chasing tornadoes. Now, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, it is. But I never cared about the weather in that way. It's also interesting, too, because, you know, it's one of those things where that's that's one of those, like, fascinating things. That when you're, you think about something like that a lot when you're a kid, or at least I know I did mm-hmm. when I was a kid and I found out, like, no, there are people who are storm chasers for mm-hmm. a living and stuff like I, I always heard about some of these jobs and I, I would for like two days think like, that's the most, that's what I'm going to do. That sounds like the most exciting thing in the world because you hear about stuff like, oh, you know, you could be like an industrial space engineer, you mm-hmm. could be like an astronaut or you could be a storm chaser and all that stuff sounds so cool when you're a kid. Yeah. And then you get into like your twenties and later and you're just kind of like, yeah, I don't Yeah. Trying to get a, a job as like a senior analyst. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not really thinking about it. 
all of a sudden you go and you see something like Twister and you're like, oh yeah, that's right. That is a profession. Yeah, people do like, that. Like, <laughs> you, you do kind of forget it. So I always enjoy whenever you have these adventure movies where they kind of pull something like that out. And they're like, oh yeah, by the way, these people are also for a living storm chasers. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I loved about it was in seeing the way that they lived, mm -hmm. it never at any point did the thing that I hate when movies do, which is had them go back to their like really nice condo. Yeah. Or their really decent house. Yeah. It showed them as kind of drifters. Yeah, they were nomads, man. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it and it showed them as that. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't know if that's true, but yeah. Well it definitely felt like it because yeah. you know they, they went over to like, you know, uh Lois Smith's character's house, um uh uh I guess Auntie Meg as she was referred yeah. to. Like they went over to Meg's house and she made steak and eggs for them and she was like you know, oh, it's so good to see you guys and everything. There was obviously that relationship there almost that you would have with, like, your aunt. Like, yeah. you're traveling through town, you stay with her. Yeah. But yet all of them kind of live in that area. Yeah. Like, that's kind of their area. But you don't really ever get the sense that they really have a lot of money or a lot that, you know, like, they're not going to... It's not the average scene that you see in a movie where they go back into their, like, you know... $400,000 home. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they cared about things like that. Yeah. That was the fun of it is that that movie, it was no basis for that except when you looked yeah. at his rival in a way. Yeah. Like if you really saw the rival and how yeah. they moved, they, they now were, that was where that mattered to them. Yeah, because they, it was obvious they all had like corporate sponsorship, yeah. you know, to whatever degree. Exactly, yeah. which means they went home to their yeah. $400, you know, $400,000 condo yeah. like every night. Yeah. And they weren't really chasing storms, in my opinion. They no. were always chasing a story. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't really the storm itself they were chasing. They were always chasing a story. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes it a little different, you know? Yeah. So that's what I saw with the rival team. But yeah. yeah. And I, I agree with that completely because that is definitely kind of how that felt. When <laughs> our neighbors are doing something. Yeah, in the hallway. <laughs> but um, it definitely did have that kind of feeling of sort of like, you know, it, it almost reminded me a lot of... Um, the uh, uh, Dan Gilroy movie Nightcrawler, mm -hmm. and where Bill Paxton interestingly plays the Carrie Elway's role yeah. in that movie. Yeah. And he's the guy who has like the corporate sponsorship and all the other stuff. Yes. And, and, you know, uh, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character is really kind of just like living out of this little apartment. He's got this one rinky-dink computer. Mm -hmm. He goes and puts together enough money just to get himself, like, a crappy little camera. Yeah. And I think, like, he, like, tries to, like, sell, like, a bike that he claims is, like, 14 speeds or something so yeah. that he can get a camera. Like, that was just Which a... Which, in the end, that movie just... That was a dark movie. Yeah. It goes a totally <laughs> That was different... a movie that did get heavy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it. <laughs> but it is interesting that, you know, even looking at a movie like that, you know, it kind of, like, mirrors it a little bit. Yeah. But it's like that movie also very smartly navigated that terrain, but I feel like there are a lot of movies that you would see. I feel like there are some people that would make Twister and they wouldn't go to Meg's house or if they yeah. did, it would be like a split second. And then later on they would go back to 
you know, whoever's place. And it would be, you know, whether it was Helen Hunt's or even like one of the other guys on the team, they would like go back to their place and be like this really, really nice place. Yeah. That obviously they can't afford. Yeah. Because they're storm chasers. Yeah. I love <laughs> And I, I did love that they never did that. It was like, no, all their money went into Dorothy. Yeah. That was where all the money went. Yeah. Because and that even was what that was, wasn't. That was made that out was of stuff not that you find, maker, okay. find at a dump. Yes, I think the that. most expensive thing on Dorothy was the painting of Dorothy <laughs> that I'm pretty sure nobody on that team did because it didn't seem like anybody there could have painted that. <laughs> someone did. I'm sure someone did. Maybe. Maybe that was, maybe that was Todd Field's secret specialty. <laughs> One of the other people, though, that I forgot to point out, though, was... Um, uh, hanging out with the Carrie Elway's character was um, Zach Greiner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was, he's like a Fincher guy. He was in Fight Club. And uh, I think he shows up for a split second in the social network. Then he was also the um, uh, kind of evil uh, uh, campus security guard, so to speak, in Debs. He was Nick Offerman's kind of right hand man. Okay. Who started like getting rid of bodies and stuff. And yeah. <laughs> but um no, yeah. So it, it fantastic cast and a fantastic film just overall. I guess kinda of like looking back on it, like what are the things about the movie that kind of stick with you kind of the most? I would say all of it. Mm-hmm. Honestly all of it. Because even when we went back and watched it the other day, there was so much that I did remember about the movie. Uh-huh. I may not remember like the really small things like their names, of course, mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. name of the characters, yeah. but the entire movie, I, I remember. That's why I was mm-hmm. like, it was like bringing me back. It was just giving me memories yeah. of when I was younger. Cause yeah. I remember all of it. Yeah. And I think the impact I love the most is just chasing that dream. Because mm-hmm. if I really think about it, that's, that's what it gave me. Mm-hmm. It's like, they never gave up to some degree. Mm-hmm. Bill Paxton did, but yeah. he, look, it came like, all he had to do was come and visit his ex yeah. and say, sign these papers. Yeah. And he was back in. Yeah. So it just reminds me of everything that you, your passion and everything that you love doing. Yeah. Kind of stick to that. Yeah. Because in that way, your heart can't really lead you too wrong in that yeah. way. When it's something that's so, that you're so passionate about. It's when you try to like fight against it, mm-hmm. just like a tornado, <laughs> you know, and which that's what brings the chaos and the complications into your life. Yeah. But once you can like go back into what you really love and you, what you really, what you're really passionate about and what mm-hmm. you really, what's really worth putting that time and effort into, mm-hmm. I think that's what makes it worth all worth the while. Yeah. And then in that, in that point to me, money, cars, yeah. houses, things like that won't yeah. matter. And I'll just be a storm chaser. Yeah. With <laughs> like Dorothy. I know with Dorothy. That's, <laughs> and look, Dorothy was on there. Think yeah. about it. When yeah. she would click her heels. That's why mm-hmm. I said all of that reminded me of dream of just dreaming. Yeah. Absolutely. I never kind of really getting away from that. I mean, yeah. just follow your heart, man. Yeah. And yeah. they did that. It, and that, that was the thing that I really liked about the movie was it was, you know, so much of that movie just does deal with the idea of like running away from something. Yep. And I love the idea that, first of all, you know, like one of the things we talked about was like, you know, the divorce was never really treated like too heavy. No. One of the things I loved is it is treated like a Howard Hawks screwball comedy. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's an element of humor to him. Like, you you got to sign the rest of the papers, man. Like, yeah. there's this, 
it, and then an, she's kind of like, what's the rush? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it, it's an interesting gender reversal mm-hmm. because mostly in movies we would actually see it the other way around where yeah. the woman's chasing the guy down. Like, you got to sign the papers, yeah. man. And in this one, it's definitely, you know, it, it was a lot of fun that it was the other way around. But then on top of that, it's treated with a certain amount of wit, a certain amount of banter, mm-hmm. a certain amount of humor. Yeah. They kind of allow the 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 lean in to be on Helen Hunt's part, yeah. which I really really like. Me too, Me you too. know, like that, like she's the one that delivers all the punchlines with it. Yeah. You know, and Bill Paxton's job is to set up all of the quips. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really really like that. You know, in terms of when they're dealing with their divorce and all that stuff, and yeah. I and I really really liked all of that stuff. But um, the other thing about it that I love is the entire idea of like it's about people trying to run away from stuff. You know, even with the Jamie Gertz character, mm-hmm. through the entire movie, she's trying to run away from her work. Yeah, what she really is in love with is is or at least what I took from it is that what she's really in love with is her patience, yeah. dealing with her patience. Yeah, to the extent that she deals with the guy that she's about to marry. That probably was as, her patient as a patient. <laughs> Because <laughs> she thinks that when he's talking about running away from storms, it's a metaphor. I still can't get over that. <laughs> but yeah. like at the end, even when they finally do separate, mm-hmm. it's like the easiest separation ever. Because they already knew. You know, sometimes and, we don't. That's why I said we just follow just follow that instinct. Yeah. Follow it because a lot of times we like to run away from what we already know to be true. Mm-hmm. And I think. They were very well aware of that. Yeah. Is that they were just running away from what they knew to be true. Yeah. And I think she just came back to it and she was the one mm-hmm. that really called it out and was just like, okay, this isn't. Yeah. This is not real. Yeah. Like we've been living in this fantasy world for, for a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing there really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about it going back to it was that you know that all that is so much of a component about it is you know it's about trying to kind of run away yeah. from something that you really love only to just get pulled back into it in the most natural way yeah. possible yeah and the and same way a tornado is just exactly. a natural disaster and dorothy the whole that i mean <laughs> mm-hmm. that made so much sense when yeah. you really think about it because that's what bill paxton did he ran yeah. away from home yeah Wishing he was somewhere else just so it can bring him right back home. Yeah. So it, I thought was, that was the cool thing. Absolutely. That's one of the other things I really enjoyed about the movie, too, is the fact that, you know, it, I think especially for for me, it's like I can get very wrapped up in overly complicated films sometimes yeah. for no reason other than just my <laughs> own personal mental gymnastics. Seeing a movie with just very, very simple on-the-sleeve metaphors yeah. is sometimes really, really nice. And... For it to be done in a way that's actually like well crafted, like you see a lot of movies getting made today with very simple on their sleeve metaphors. Yeah, but it doesn't really feel like there's this level of craft behind that's, it. That's the difference, though. Yeah, is that they're very on the sleeve, but then where's the craft in it, though? Yeah, how you execute it matters. Yeah, because absolutely. that's what makes it more interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you really think about a lot of the movies we watch. A lot of that stuff is basic, right? Yeah. But yeah. it depends on how you execute it and then you decide to tell uh-huh. a story. It's what makes it interesting. Yeah. We've seen the same stories over and over again, but they can oftentimes look different yeah. depending on how you well, choose I, to tell it. I think one of the really good examples is when they go to the drive through and they're watching the movie yeah. and it is The Shining. I think that a lot of movies, the, I think if Twister was made today, mm-hmm. 
one of the things would be that likely you would actually see the Wizard of Oz playing on the drive-in screen. Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I really just now like processing that. Yes, you're right. Yeah. It would be on the screen. <laughs> and rather than the shining. And you know, the shining is playing on that screen is a more realistic. Yeah. That it would be playing at a drive-in on a Thursday night, late yeah. at night. And, and somewhere in the fall, because that's usually yeah. late summer into yeah. early fall is usually when that tornado season is. Yep. So that's usually the time you watch and horror films. Yeah, exactly. And especially like a drive-in for a horror movie mm-hmm. and you're you're doing The Shining. I mean, it's just, it's so perfect. But it's also like a wonderful comment on what the movie itself is doing yeah. and how different that is from what you normally get out of uh, out of like a monster movie. Yeah. But then, like, you know, in big air quotes, <laughs> like, but then the other thing that I really loved about it, too, is that, like, all of these metaphors and references are right on the sleeve. Mm-hmm. You don't really have to think that much about them. But they put it together in such a, like, beautiful way that it's kind of like you're still being carried along with the story without ever really feeling like you're being overly spoon-fed. Yeah, because, I mean... A lot of that stuff isn't being said, but mm-hmm. if you're really paying attention and following the story, even when it's not that deep, yeah. you're just paying attention and following the story, you kind of see yeah. the relation in it. Yep. Because he was somebody that ran and came back home. Yep. He's like, I just want to go home. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he kind of came back. And yeah. when you see the Dorothy on that, the little storm chaser thing where it mm-hmm. can actually, I guess, how you say it, it monitors it and monitors it measures. The in, it measures the inside of the tornado. Yes. And when you see that as Dorothy, like, why isn't that? Isn't that a tornado what carried her away and yep. brought her back in yep. the first place? So that's that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of relate it to everything. That's why I'm just like, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah it really is. Um, I guess kind of like, you know, moving into to wrapping it up, uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that Twister recently was back in the news. Oh, yeah. There's and a sequel. There's a sequel called <laughs> Twisters. Yes. And it seems very, very odd yeah. that that's coming back now. Yeah. I, I don't really know. So I haven't read much about it. I don't know if you have. I haven't read too much. I read a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that um, Steven Spielberg will be attached to it. So, as a producer, yes, okay. and Amblin Entertainment mm-hmm. and Universal Studios mm-hmm. is re kind of yeah, partnering with okay to, to actually make that film. Okay, so I did hear that it was going to be like it's, it's starting to be in the works, like there's major talk, and they were just like they're gonna kind of fast pace the movie, mm-hmm. trying to get yeah, something, like fast yeah, uh huh, or fast track it into production. And so, I thought that was pretty interesting. And they said this story was supposed to supposed to be about um helen hunt and bill's daughter like they're they have a daughter and and then her their daughter is supposed to be now the storm chaser interesting yeah so we'll see but they said they don't know if they're not sure if helen hunt's coming back for that movie they just know it's about her daughter i i could imagine it potentially being hard based on a couple of things based on the script but also based on paxton Oh, not yeah. you know, not really being there to. to yeah, but at the same time, you know how involved. they do. They can, yeah. they can easily write a story. You know, a For section sure. in that's about yeah. him and why he's no longer there. Yeah. But with Helen Hunt, of course, still yeah. being alive and well, like, so what does that mean? Because I mean, it wouldn't be the same. 
it if they didn't yeah, bring her back. I mean, no, it wouldn't. Yeah, so it, it would be kind of like what we just got with these Jurassic Park movies, how we had to we've we've had to kind of wait for like the third new one for the original people yeah. to finally come back, and that was we all knew that was the only way we were going to get into the theater at this point to see another. Jurassic Park with yeah. Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt yeah. extending their arms at in the direction of Velociraptors yeah. or running in heels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is what bring back the original cast, right? <laughs> yeah. But like um I I would be very interested to see what they do with this new one, especially because as we were talking about before, like with craft. Mm-hmm. I I would be very interested to see who directs it and, and how it's done. Yeah. This time out, because one thing I do think is that this movie made a very solid case for blockbusters being made on 35 millimeter, Mm -hmm. not because of the look per se, but because you were forced to actually focus on a frame. Yeah. And so the movie was well made. It was was was. well done because Mm -hmm. you were forced to figure out a frame for every single moment in the movie. Yeah. As a director, because you, you couldn't just let the digital camera run forever in a day mm-hmm. and then just cut something together in the end. So I'd be very curious to see how this new Twisters <laughs> <laughs> comes out. Um, this movie was uh, roughly made for uh, between somewhere between 88 and $92 million. And um, apparently two and a half million of that budget went to Jan de Mont. <laughs> Okay. Uh, it wound up grossing uh, roughly around 495.7 million worldwide. Okay. So it's okay. pretty, pretty so successful. Blockbuster? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. a blockbuster. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, uh, when the movie was written, they paid, uh, I found out that they paid Michael Crichton and his wife somewhere around $2 million. Okay. And it was. At the time, it was uh, two and a half million dollars to them. And it was at the time the most ex- expensive screenplay ever written. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. But that is our conversation on Twister. And now we're going to go over to talk a little bit about uh, six movies that we went through, uh, along with a few others along the way, that uh, we watched with the hopes that we would capture <laughs> yes. the same kind of rush and energy as this movie. Yeah. But then we found out that there's no place like home and just went back to Twister. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's the perfect way to put it. <laughs> so next we'll be talking about those movies. Yeah. All right. So up next we're doing our... Uh, Kind of traipsing into nostalgia, only to realize that what we were actually looking for were like really well-made studio movies. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and that's all that we were actually looking for. Yeah, so this movie that's coming up, um, well, it's here. (laughs) Yeah, it's the day after tomorrow. Yeah, we kind of thought because it was along the same line as like a disaster, a natural disaster movie. Yeah. We thought we'd go back and kind of <laughs> watch yeah. this one. Yeah. Um, not the same. No. <laughs> not no. the same at all. No. <laughs> um, it was made in 2004. Yeah. Um, it has uh, Dennis Quaid. Yeah. And um, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I don't know what to say about this one. And also a relatively early Emmy Rossum. Yes. And I yes. think one of the things is it's really, really funny because now we associate Emmy Rossum so much with Shameless. She's one of those people, though, that I actually remember as she was coming up. Oh, me too. And I remember when Phantom of the Opera came out. Yeah. And her and Gerard Butler were both being talked about as kind of a big deal yeah. at that time. And, and Gerard Butler was about then, to come back up for us I don't also. know if anybody remembers, but mm-hmm. we, even be, before the Phantom of the Opera, mm-hmm. she actually played in this Disney movie called Genius. <laughs> I did not see this. Yes, I saw this one. Because that's just what I was mm-hmm. watching when you I was You are like... a connoisseur of <laughs> Disney things. Because when I was growing up, I was yeah. so like yeah. yeah, I was I was too deep into it, but <laughs> <laughs> But you are kind of the go to person for all things Disney and I don't know about and, that, but uh, what well I guess oh, like what their, used to be Disney. Yeah, like the, the the classic kind of like Disney I guess, like, was that, like, Disney Channel? Yeah, it was the Disney Channel. Yeah. So, yeah, I was really deep into the Disney Channel growing up when I was, like, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. See, for me, that was Cartoon Network. Yeah. And all these animated shows. Yeah. And so, like, I... I mean, for my brothers, that was the same thing for them. (laughs) I'm the only one that would be like, let's change the Disney Channel so I can see a movie. Because they would premiere at least, like, one or, like, at least one movie either once a month or like once every two or three months, they would uh, always permit a new movie. Okay. Like that's that's the schedule they kind of was on at that time. I do vaguely remember this because I remember when we would be on vacation and I didn't grow up with cable. And so mm-hmm. I would see stuff at my grandparents' house or when we went on vacation. Mm-hmm. And I remember we would go on vacation. There'd be like a new Disney thing. And I actually remember one year we, for some weird reason, were out around October mm-hmm. and seeing a like a halloween special yeah that came out that i was like oh wow this is actually kind of cool i think that's one of the only disney things i actually enjoyed and the funny thing is i don't even remember what it was yeah (laughs) and you know what it's so funny because if i'm not mistaken here's also a fun fact when we were talking about michael Crichton and jurassic park Mm -hmm. well which one was i think the fourth one with teo leone that was the third. That's the third that's, one. That's number three. Okay. Yeah. That's so, actually my my favorite one aside from the original, okay. which is an unpopular opinion, but I stand by that movie. Yes. Okay. So the son <laughs> in that one yeah, yeah, was yeah. the main character in Genius. He was the genius. Uh, and she was kind of like the love interest. And we saw him in something else recently, too, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, no. You don't remember? No. It was Sixth Sense. He was in he the was Sixth Sense. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that was another move. That's not on our list, but that was another one that we went to yeah. in hopes of recapturing something. And yeah. That movie just annoyed me again. <laughs> that was funny. So I guess that brings us back to Day After Tomorrow, even yeah. though we we don't have much to say about no, that one. <laughs> no, I I was definitely kind of like what. What is this? So I remember when Day After Tomorrow came out, mm-hmm. I remember seeing it in the theater, mm-hmm. and I remember really liking it. Yeah. I think, in retrospect, what I really, really liked was I had never seen special effects quite like what they did with that movie. Which, I mean, it did get a lot of mm-hmm. praise for its special effects at that time. It yeah. did. And honestly, the way that the movie is made, and I will give this to Roland Emmerich, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge Roland Emmerich fan, I I think that some of the, I, I always give him credit for the fact that he's one of the few guys around that still 
makes big blockbuster movies. I know his recent thing was Moonfall. That title still confuses me. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I, I haven't seen it. But um, he's one of the few guys around that still, the movies that he writes, it's for the most part original material. Yeah. You know, like, or at least it's not based on IP or a franchise or anything like that. He he goes after something that he really kind of feels a certain kind of way about. He even went as far as to do the Anonymous, the William Shakespeare yeah. movie, which had a really cool trailer and was a very bad movie. <laughs> but it had, uh, I mean, they used Radiohead's Everything in Its Right Place in the yeah. trailer, which I absolutely loved hearing <laughs> in the, in, on the theater sound system. Yeah. Um, weirdly though, this movie I, I realized was based on a book that was co-wrote, co-written by, uh, uh, the kind of most known host of Coast to Coast AM, mm-hmm. which I used to listen to, and my brother really used to listen to, and my dad really used to listen to, uh, named Art Bell. Mm-hmm. And so some people will hear Art Bell's name and be kind of like, oh boy. And... <laughs> The guy is definitely a nutbag, but he's a fascinating guy, and uh, he actually wrote the book that this was loosely based on, which was called uh, The Coming Global Superstorm. Okay. And it was interesting going back to the movie, because it was the only thing that I remember us calling out was how fascinating it was that they were dealing with climate crisis in this movie. And in that way, it does feel like if they just redid the special effects on today's standards and redid the CGI on today's standards. It feels like that movie could have actually come out like a couple of days ago. Yeah. Just by nature of, you know, what, like what they were talking about within it. But I, I really did not have a whole lot to say beyond that. I mean, yeah. And it was a major commercial success. It was. So, I mean, the budget was $125 million and mm-hmm. it grows back. Five hundred and fifty-two point six million. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yep. that's not bad. It isn't, and it, 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 it. I remember when I saw it in the theater, it being a packed house. Yes, that's the main thing that I remember. I mean, because everybody it. wants to see. Yeah. Those kind of movies. I don't know because they do put you in the same eye frame as Twister. Those sure. big natural disasters you kind of yeah. want to see because that also plays on your psyche. Like, think about it. Yeah. Like, if you see that, you're like, see, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it, it can play on that real, like, it can bleed a little bit into your real life thinking, like, this could be a possibility. For sure. So, I think that's why, I, re- I mean, everybody can relate to that being yeah. something on your mind at one point. So, I think that's why it grows back so much. Yeah, I think so, too. And it, it um, the cast was also attractive yeah, at that time, yeah. an attractive reason to go and see it. Yeah. Uh, I think Dennis Quaid was a, a little bit more still in the popular consciousness at yeah. that time, mm-hmm. like in terms of an actor that you would see and go, oh, it's a new Dennis Quaid movie. Let's mm-hmm. go check it out. Yeah. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal, of course, like for, I know for specifically for like my, like our age group was, he was Donnie Darko and that movie was becoming a thing on video at that time. And I know him from October Sky. Yeah. I I really love that movie. Yeah. That was a fantastic movie. Who, Laura Dern. Yes. Laura Dern. (laughs) Her name coming back up. Um, And uh, Amy Rossum was just kind of a reason for me at that age to go and see it. <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, and then, you know, I mean, it also sports a really, really 
interesting performance. It, not interesting in a bad way, but interesting in the way that I wasn't expecting it. Going back to it, it was probably the only thing I was looking at mm-hmm. rewatching a movie from Ian Holm. Oh, okay. And who obviously I and everybody else loves from Alien and he was Bilbo. Yeah. You know? I mean, yep. like, yeah, so we have like those, those kind of classic kind yeah. of fantasy movies with him. But um, fantasy and sci-fi. But um it, it was great seeing him in there too and yeah. everything, but I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It just wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think it, I don't know. I don't think it translates well now. Like when no. it came out, it probably, it was, you know, it was big. It was major. It was, it, it was great to watch. But I think when we went back and tried to watch it, it was like, no, not the same. No. Not the same. It, but for some reason, Twister could give us that same yeah, feeling, which, but that just didn't do it for me. Which is interesting, because when you go back and you look, I mean, it, Day After Tomorrow, like most of Roland Emmerich's movies for a long period of time, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the reasons why maybe his movies aren't quite connecting in the same way mm-hmm. that they did with a younger audience, is it is... I mean, it, it, everything now has special effects. Yeah. Everything now is... Yeah. You're going to see a city levitated yeah. into the sky and then dropped, and you, you have all, yeah. all this craziness. And so when you're not for want for a special effects CGI fest, you know, now you're kind of, like, really grasping at straws for the reason to watch this new Roland Emmerich movie, unless you're just a fan. And, yeah. And, yeah. or unless, you know, your thing is catastrophe movies, yeah. you know I mean? If the, if those are your things, you're going to run to his film. So he still has a large audience. Yeah. But I think the audience used to be a lot bigger because when movies like day after tomorrow, another one that we went back to independence day yeah. came out, <laughs> those movies were so driven by their special effects. Yeah. Independence Day, another one that we went back to that I just realized I was like, I know this movie, but I don't know it as well as I thought I did. What? Uh, Independence Day. Oh, okay. And and I, I, I like going back to that one was also another one where I was like, I do not like this movie the way that yeah, I thought that I did. Me either. I was like, what? First of all, I thought that Will like my memory is that Will Smith is the star of that movie <laughs> and is in almost every scene of the movie. I realize that's because the Will Smith scenes are the only good thing about that movie, yes. and they're the only thing that I remember. But he's if you cut all the scenes together, he's probably in about 45 minutes of the two-hour movie. You're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. That's why I. it was a little bit of a shock, because yeah. I was like, wait a minute. And Did this... This is how this happened. <laughs> so I don't, I didn't quite remember it either until we kind of went back and watched it. And I was like, wait. Yeah. Right. And I never saw the sequel. Did you ever see the Independence No, yeah. I just couldn't get down with the sequel. I'm I can't sorry. Either. For I one, I, you know my feelings on that one. Yeah. Why they just didn't. Your I wife... just really preferred if they would have just recast Mae Whitman. Yeah. Yeah. I if mean, they would have brought her back. Yes. Yeah. I mean, because. She was the she, she was, was the, the original little girl. girl, yeah. And I'm like, she's doing the same thing. She's still acting. She's still doing. And she had just come off of the Duff when yeah. they were making that movie, so she just had come off of leading a movie, yeah. And then, and if she didn't want to do it, cool. But I yeah. just wish that yeah. if she didn't care, she didn't mind. Then why not? Yeah. Why not bring back? I mean, I, for it to be years later, I would love to just have seen, yeah, almost like that evolution of her, yeah. In the movie again, I just would have loved to see that. So I just wish they would have. Yeah. So for that, I think I I like boycotted a little bit. 
<laughs> it is also interesting too because it not it, really, but <laughs> it brings up to me that my um, my feelings of sadness for the career of Liam Hemsworth. Yeah, uh, this guy has had an odd career up to this point, mm-hmm. and it just got weirder with the recent announcement that Henry Cavill is leaving The Witcher. Okay, as Gerald, I think his name is, and mm-hmm. so I've played I some of the video game. I don't I've, I've follow never, that. I, had, show. I don't either. I've never watched the show. I uh, uh, I've played some of the Witcher Three video game, and I've never read the books. Mm-hmm. I've seen some of the artwork, which is beautiful. I don't know if the art, like I think most of the artwork is kind of fan generated uh, that I've seen, but like uh, he is now replacing. Uh, Henry Cavill, Liam Hemsworth is. Okay. And it's sort of like when I think about the Independence Day sequel and him replacing Henry Cavill and various I mean, now other... we get another side of Thor? No, no, no. His, his brother, Liam oh, Hemsworth. Liam, not Chris. Not Chris. But, well, Liam. Okay, that one's a little different as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. It's odd, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't know because I don't really watch that show. I don't so either. I wouldn't know. Uh, so up next, uh, <laughs> leaving day after tomorrow in the dust. <laughs> Literally. Up next, we have 2003's Open Water, directed by uh, Chris Kentis. It, it's sort of an odd thing. He's credited as director. It's really kind of more of a co-directed production um, between him and his wife, Laura Lau, uh, who's credited as producer along with her sister. Um, they they haven't really done a whole lot. They did a... a after Open Water, the only other thing they've done is a remake of, I believe the movie was called Silent House, uh, with uh, Elizabeth Olsen. Okay. And um, But they, they did this movie. So I love Open Water. I thought this movie was great because it has all of my favorite things in it. It has uh, sharks mm-hmm. and people being tormented by sharks. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> I love movies in which like the the people are trapped in a situation in which animals are attacking them. This is like another form of like the kind of it's not really a disaster movie, but it's another form of the odd monster movie. A lot but like it's, in a way, it's like still like nature meets human. Yeah, so it's it still is. funny it's, in a way. Yeah, human versus nature. Yeah, and I, when it comes to there was a recent one that just came out with. Idris Elba that uh, I still need to see called Beast. Oh, yeah. Um, but it, I, my general complaint with these movies, which I don't have with Open Water, is that the animals never win. <laughs> and the only, I mean, should they? I, I like it when they win, personally. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I show up to these movies. I want to see people get eaten. <laughs> I don't like, I don't know if I like when, if they win or not. I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> I think that that's that's my general thing with these movies. As I've said for a long time, I just want to see versions where the animals win, where they eat everybody, and then <laughs> I, I that that makes me a satisfied customer. I love. To me, it depends on the situation, though, because yeah, I mean, if it's about the humans like torturing something or trying to like, no, 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 if it's things yeah. like that, yeah, I want the I want the monster or the animal to win, yeah, but like. Yeah. When it's human versus nature, I have to put myself in that position yeah. of going, like, no, I hope you, like, no, yeah. I hope I kill you. <laughs> I, I, I think it's one of those things where, for me, uh, with human versus nature movies, when it deals with, an like, human versus animal 
to any degree, <laughs> yeah. you know, whether it's uh, sharks with this or uh, I think the only one that I like where the humans win is Jaws. It's just because I love that movie yeah. so much. But um, whether it's something like this or, uh, you, you know, um, like a natural disaster movie, I don't really care. I, I, at that point, I really kind of prefer the people to get out. Yeah. But I think also because I lean into pessimistic endings, yeah. I enjoy a movie with a really pessimistic ending. <laughs> and so I, I like seeing the, <laughs> the, the animal win. Open Water is... A, I don't know. How did you feel about this one? Because this is a movie that I love, but... I was indifferent. Yeah. I didn't really care. I was like, just give me Jaws any day. But <laughs> this one, I was just like, man, I don't really yeah. care what... You know, it, I don't care. <laughs> it's, it's a strange movie. It's a strange movie to go back to because I... I um, so rewatching it, I realized that I really don't like the first 20 minutes of the movie, which yeah. the first 20 minutes is them trying not trying to, but them getting to that place where they're stuck. Yeah. And the whole story revolves around, of course, a couple that gets on a boat and their vacation, what they do on vacation is they go on scuba diving expeditions. They go on their little diving expedition. They come back up to the surface and they realize that the boat is gone. <laughs> and now they're just in the water. There's nothing, or there's no other boats around them. The few other boats that are around them are not going to hear them screaming for help and yeah. all of a sudden sharks emerge yeah and start gnawing at them bit by bit yeah um it's an odd movie though in that it was it was shot with real sharks they didn't have the money to afford mechanical sharks and my understanding of chris kentis and laura lau is that they had really actually done real diving expeditions with sharks so okay. they were relatively comfortable yeah with this idea mm -hmm. of doing this movie in this way where they actually got digital video cameras and which at the time were mini dv cameras and just really got into the ocean with real sharks and put their two actors in these situations where yeah. real sharks were swimming around them. yeah um but that first 20 minutes is not very good mm-hmm it's just not, you know, that that introductory 20 minutes has, it's just not very good. It has a very odd nude scene with uh, Blanchard Ryan, who, yeah. I mean, I, look, I don't mind it, but, like, <laughs> at the same time, <laughs> it was very odd. It didn't really, I understand what they were going for. I think Blanchard Ryan herself had said that it was an odd situation when she came in for the rehearsal, that they were basically like, this is non-negotiable. You're doing nudity. If you don't want to do it. If you don't want to do nudity and swim with real sharks then and have really long days in the ocean, then don't continue auditioning. Not only that, but to me, that is actually, I don't know, for me, that seems to be the, how do you say, kind of like the structure of a lot of stories like that, especially yeah. when you kind of incorporate horror into it a little bit. Because yeah. think about like Jason, there mm -hmm. was always some girl naked. Yeah. Or having sex before, like yeah. she or he died, it, it just was, like in Freddy Krueger, like in yeah, Nightmare, in like Nightmare on Elm Street, Street. Friday Thirteenth. Yeah. yeah, there's always things happening the, like that to some degree. Yeah, before like someone dies, and so, so it just reminded me of that same structure. So absolutely. that's why I was just like, I get why they did it. So you know, that's actually an interesting thing that I hadn't thought of that makes this a more compelling kind of moment for that first compelling. 20 well no, for me for me it makes <laughs> that more compelling moment of those first 20 minutes and the the 
the general idea that you're bringing up there is that within slasher movies, it's the kids that have stuff, which I don't really necessarily buy into this idea, but it is a fascinating theory that seems to kind of work with yeah. a lot of these movies is that it's always the girl that doesn't have sex that ends up living at the end. <laughs> yeah. So what are you trying to say? <laughs> it's the girl that, that upholds the morale, the, the morals of, you know, not just like having just like wild sex that winds up being the one that's the final girl, you know? Yeah, and, but I don't know if that's completely true based on the sense is the, like the monster is always chasing after them. Yeah, yeah. They just seem to get away in certain ways, maybe because of their wit or their speed or their, yeah. their intelligence, yeah. which to me separately has nothing to do with it, sex. So yeah. maybe that has nothing to do with it. It's you know? one of those things where it, it's a fascinating theory and I... I do agree with it to a degree. And I think that at a certain point, filmmakers started leaning into that idea. Yeah. But, um, I think that that was something that was kind of implanted into their minds that they started <laughs> running after. Yeah. And I don't necessarily agree with the idea that that was the point of, I don't agree at all with the fact that like, with the idea that was kind of quote unquote, the point of like Halloween Me either. and the Laurie Strode character and how she, and you know, a, kind of subtextual reason as to why she got out of it. Yeah. But it, it is a fascinating theory, but it makes this more fascinating to me because she is, and when we first meet her, fully nude, <laughs> laying in bed, and the whole entire scene is that she's obviously kind of in a place where she's like, I guess we're having sex tonight mm -hmm. because we're on vacation, and then they both are kind of like, I don't really feel like it. Yeah. And just go to bed. Yeah. It's interesting that she's, she's the one that survives the longest <laughs> out of the two of them after that. <laughs> See, you're trying to relate it, it like it, that well, makes it, it funny. It's, it's interesting to me that, that you can make the case. Yeah. I, I think that the case can be made, but like, I don't know if I necessarily I buy the theory. The but... <laughs> she got nibbled at while her husband got yeah. like bit like yeah he was bleeding out he so was i think that was the major difference yeah. <laughs> is why she lasted longer i i think you're right yeah <laughs> <laughs> but um i don't know there was a, the the ending of that movie to me is still incredible the 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 kind of hour that comes after those yeah. first 20 minutes is still incredible to me of them being stuck out there and it did exactly what i love a movie like this doing which is throughout the entire movie we were talking about how we would deal with that situation yeah. if we were in it yep we sure were <laughs> and the other thing that i like about it is first i would never do it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i would never scoop with that i yeah. don't do stuff like that i don't it, it was really interesting rewatching it and seeing um the the realism one of the things that irritates me a lot of times i think it irritates everybody with horror movies is that you have to have the suspension of disbelief with horror movies that people are going to use horror movie logic yes. in big air quotes. Yes. And I, I don't always lean into that, but what I did like was the aspect of them, like trying to, the way that they comforted each other yeah. and the illogical things that they did felt real. Yeah. Like it felt like one of those things where you're sort of like, but you know, if I was in a panic, I might do something kind of like that too. Yeah. And that all felt very real to me and really well done. I okay. think that the, the, I think Blanchard Ryan and, um, uh, Daniel Travis, who are the two actors in the film did a great job with that. Yeah. And I, I like the elements of those two characters, how, you know, he was a lot more 
kind of like calm and kind of like, you know, we just gotta, you know, we're, we're going to figure something out. And she's kind of like, I'm getting cold. Yeah. I, I, you know, and you see her getting kind of frustrated. You see him trying to kind of, you know, help her with that frustration until it all just reverses. I know. And that's what makes it like interesting. I think that's one of the only parts to me that is interesting. Just think about it. Once he pretty much dies, she's like, I have no chance of living. Yeah. Think about that. Yep. If he was the stronger of the two, think about it. Once he died, she knew she had no choice. And so she just drowned herself. Yeah, I, I love the last shot being her. That just, was it. I, that's yeah. the only interesting part to me. Other than that, I just felt <laughs> completely indifferent to it. I don't know. I just yeah. Didn't, you know? That that was one that I enjoyed, and I enjoyed going back to it. And uh, I love the last shot of her just taking off her tank and yeah. then just going out of the water and just letting herself be shark food. I was like, yep. hey, the sharks won. Yep. I was happy. Yep. <laughs> I was not as happy with our next movie. Lake Placid from 1999, directed by Steve Miner, written by David E. Kelly. David E. Kelly, the writer of, um, let's go through some of these credits here really quick. Doogie (laughs) Howser, Chicago Hope, The Practice, Ally McBeal, Boston Public, Boston Legal, Little Big Lies. Yes. I don't know why this guy decided to write a giant crocodile movie outside (laughs) of money. (laughs) Um, But he did. Yes. It has a very interesting cast with Bill Pullman. Uh, 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 playing kind of a version of the Brody character from Jaws. Yeah. Um, Bridget Fonda as, as some kind of a paleontologist. I have no idea what kind of a paleontologist she is. Not in terms of literally, <laughs> just in the sense of like, I she was like the weirdest. The the. Uh, company she was working for, whatever, the museum she was working mm-hmm. for, and the way she got sent out there, all of that <laughs> stuff, I was like, I don't know what kind of a paleontologist you are or what kind of an institution you're working for. But yes, because like, that would be weird for something like that to happen Yeah, in real life. Yeah. All of a sudden, it, you it, get sent to go look at... Just a, because everybody's annoyed with you, you and you, your breakup? <laughs> because he cheated. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's what it was, yeah. The one that ran the museum, he, he cheated on her. It was just getting irritated with another with her. woman that was there. Like <laughs> it was just like get out. Yeah, that was um, an interesting way to do that. Yeah. Uh, Oliver Platt shows up essentially doing some version of the Hooper character from Jaws, the Richard <laughs> Dreyfus played. I don't know what the hell he was doing in there. Me either. And then um, my two favorite parts of the movie: Brendan Gleeson as a sheriff with some kind of a southern accent going on yeah it, it was, was a mixture between southern and like irish yeah it was it was an irish southern accent but not a southern irish accent no <laughs> an irish southern accent and betty white is a nutbag and i mean I, yeah they, they were my two favorite things she was the only interesting character because she was feeding <laughs> she, she was doing it she was the one feeding the, the the crocodile yeah that's what yeah. i say alligator but she was the only one feeding the crocodile mm-hmm. and that's the whole reason why it kept coming back in the first place is because it's like any animal yeah it's like you know how when there are stray cats in your neighborhood yeah if you leave food out for it to <laughs> yeah. eat it's going to keep coming back to your door yeah wanting you to feed it all the time it's, yeah. it's, that was the same mentality of the crocodile why it wouldn't was. it be it was getting it was. its food very easily from you why wouldn't it, it come was. back 
So basically, it was her fault that it started eating everybody in the town. That's what made it funny. And even after her husband got ate by this thing, she still was like, ah. Yeah. I'm just like, whoa. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I don't really know what to say about this movie. This was another movie that I remember liking a lot on TV. Yeah. And then going back to it, I was like, this movie is beyond dumb. Yeah. I don't know what I... The, the thing that I used to like about it, I think that I was way more impressed by than what I am at this point, was the true star of the movie, which is Stan Winston's crocodile design. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. The crocodile in the movie is incredible to look at. Yeah. And it's one of the rare things. I mean, of course, we, we mentioned Jaws, you know, a lot within the context of these two movies. One of the rare things with these movies is that, you, you know, you don't normally show the monster too much. And, you know, that kind of started with Jaws just by necessity. Yeah. Because the shark kept breaking down. And <laughs> this shark. It, it, it was such an annoyance that Steven Spielberg nicknamed it Bruce after his own lawyer. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, like, and, but with this movie, they put pretty much all of their money and attention, and you can tell, into the crocodile. Yeah. And it, it you actually get to see it throughout the movie and in a really wonderful way. Yeah. And it's incredible looking at that thing that, you know, this was something that was designed, you know, by a makeup, a, a tremendous makeup artist. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of, to me, the best part of the movie. I was irritated that the crocodile got killed. <laughs> I thought it should have eaten all of these annoying characters. I wanted all of them to die as the movie was going on. I was just like, I cannot wait to I watch. don't know. I don't know. Because this, <laughs> this was one of the stories where they weren't poking at it in the sense of like they were just torturing it or yeah. really messing with it. Or they were, no, this, I mean, it came in and invaded a part of their lives yeah. that and it shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, don't we do the same thing too? Yeah. We kind of invade or impede on someone's home, on yeah. nature's home. Yeah. And we kind of end up in that situation where now we're fighting against nature. Yeah. And then it's just reminding me of that, except the other way around. It was impeding on a human's home because yeah. it kept coming onto the land and coming into the, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. killing people that was around that area. Yeah. So, and then it wasn't even supposed to be there, right? Because. No. They're kind of usually found in like swamp areas, and that wasn't yeah. a swamp; it was yeah. a lake. Yeah, and I, I think like uh, I'm trying to remember what the whole entire deal with it was. It was like a saltwater. Oh, but that's why, yeah. yeah. Okay. It wasn't supposed to be there. It was. That's what I mean. It wasn't yeah. even supposed to be there. So, but like, I mean, so that means it impeded somewhere yeah. it wasn't supposed to be. So when move, when it comes to things like that, I that's when I don't mind if the. Like, it dies. I don't mind. I don't want you impeding on my life. So, yeah, I mean. I think my feeling of that movie was a lot like we had just mentioned Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. That at a certain point in Halloween, at a certain point with all those movies, the teenagers are so obnoxious (laughs) and annoying that you're waiting for them to die. You're actively waiting (laughs) for them to die. And that is definitely how I felt about these characters versus this crocodile. I was just like, I want all of you to die. I don't like any of these characters. I want them to be I don't rid of. understand that, though. I really don't. I'm just like, I only understand that if it was, if the people were doing something yeah. that they shouldn't have been doing. But yeah. 
Why wouldn't you? I, I think that they were doing something they weren't. And that, what was that? that? They shouldn't have been doing. They were very annoying. No. And obnoxious. That's, that's not enough reason. <laughs> that's not. The other thing that I'll say about this movie is that, which I found very funny, is I, I when I was looking up David E. Kelly, I found out that his writing process is often to get a legal pad, get a ballpoint pen, and to, over the course of two to four days, write the entire script as fast as he can and get it done and then start editing it. With this movie, I really felt like he did that process of that two to four days, wrote the script, <laughs> and then was just like, do whatever, and just handed it off and was just done. Because oh, no. this movie does read like a movie that was written in a weekend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It was just not very good. I mean, but did you like enjoy it in a way that it should at least be enjoyed? Because it's a, I, it's a, like you said, it's like a muscle movie. So it's just I, like... I I enjoyed uh, all the special effect shots uh, quite a bit, and I uh, I really enjoyed Betty White and I really enjoyed <laughs> Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. And other than that, no, I actually found it kind of insufferable watching it. And it was my pick. Yeah. <laughs> I found it kind of insufferable when I was watching yeah. it. I was like, we should put on... I mean, Day After Tomorrow was mine. Yeah. It, it, but that one I didn't even find as insufferable as, like, Placid. Like, <laughs> I, I actually got a little bit of slight enjoyment out of Day After Tomorrow that I did not get out of, like, Placid at yeah. all. Yeah. That's but, hilarious. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. I definitely would not go back to that one. <laughs> okay. Well, then. <laughs> Our next film would be Reign of Fire. I think that was like one of my picks. Yeah. Because I, I, I remember the last time I watched it, like years ago. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. So that reminded me of that because that was like a post-apocalyptic movie too as well as some yeah. of these other ones like The Day After Tomorrow. Yeah. So... Oh, well, at least that one was happening in the moment, yeah, I guess. Yeah, th this one kind of doubles us both, because you see the start of the apocalypse, yeah. and then you see post-apocalypse. Exactly, so. where they kind of, like, awaken dragons, which that one was a little out there and kind of strange, but yeah. then again, I still love, like, mm -hmm. fantasy movies like that as well, yeah. so I love dragons, like, yeah. movies about yeah, things like too. that. I mean, yeah. I was a big fan of Game of Thrones and things yeah. like that, and it was because I was waiting to see the dragons. Yeah. Um, so I thought this was a great pick. Um, Absolutely. I also liked it because it was something, if you really think about it, it kind of led you away from all the technology and everything that we got going on today. Mm -hmm. That was a world where they had none. Yeah. yeah. Like nothing. Yeah. They couldn't sit down and watch TV. No. I mean, they're... they couldn't even go to like a grocery store. Like they nope. had to plant all their vegetables in a small area of like a small area that they could actually easily access, mm -hmm. um, access to because it was like, oh, like I can't do it too far because if I go too far yeah. from where I'm locked down at, the dragons yeah. can come and get me because yeah. they, I mean, they took over everything, the sky, yeah. the land, yeah. everything. So I just found that very interesting. Um, it was very, uh, yeah, it was interesting, but it was made in 2002. Mm -hmm. Um, it was it's starring Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bell. It was directed by Rob Bowman. Yep, who did a lot of the X Files. Yeah, he, yeah. So he, was, he would know. Yeah. If anybody could know about sci-fi and fantasy, it would be and him. How to you know? deal with a monster? And monsters. Yeah. You're right. So. It, and that was a part too where once again we deal with 
almost, I guess you can yeah. say, in the fantasy world, nature versus human. Yeah. Um, and the dragons just happen to be that. And I like I love the looks of those dragons, but like they need to be dead. Yeah, because no, so if it's between me and you, <laughs> like I'm going to choose me. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and with this one, I actually, I think that they, much like Jaws, they did it correctly in the sense that, you know, the the monster is really established in such a way, and the characters are established in such a way that are very understandable. It's very relatable, and so you understand the need to defeat the monster. Yeah. And that's what I really liked about it. Yeah. And, you know, all the way down to they do something so simple that I know we were talking about while we were watching the movie, which is when they're, when they have the sequence with the kids, which is like my favorite part of the whole movie. And um, Gerard Butler, of course, is also in the movie and gives a brilliant performance Mm -hmm. in there in a way that like, sometimes I kind of forget that Gerard Butler is actually a really great actor. Yeah. And um, watching this movie kind of reminded me, I was like, oh yeah, like Jordan Butler is kind of awesome. Of course, man. Three hundred. <laughs> I mean, he was getting three hundred, <laughs> but like it kind of seems like post three hundred, he's just yes. doing kind of action guy roles. But I sometimes forget about movies like Gamer and Reign of Fire, where he's yeah. in there having to give like a kind of a cool performance. And there's that scene with the kids, which is probably my favorite scene out of the whole movie, outside of McConaughey showing up and being as McConaughey <laughs> as he possibly can. But when they're delving into like the myth that they you know like they're gonna pass down a myth to these Mm -hmm. kids like a cultural myth yes the one that they have is empire strikes back yeah and when you think about okay christian bell is maybe the age of these kids when he sees the first dragon wake up and start taking over yeah the thing that he probably has in his head that he's most obsessed with is like Star Wars. <laughs> you know, it's like like any boy about that age at that time. Yes. You know, it, it would be like Star Wars. And here's an interesting fact um, about the, of course, the story itself is that it was supposed to be, it was supposed to take place in the year 2020. Oh, yeah. So, okay. That's, that's pretty interesting. It is. Yeah. Especially concerned that our 2020 was on lockdown. I, that's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. That is fascinating. <laughs> but, yeah. I don't know. They might be telling us something. <laughs> that's, I'm like, okay. I found that very like interesting. It know? is. And it, that was that was one of like the, the things that... I mean, we even kind of called that out while we were watching it. Was mm-hmm. that, that feeling of isolation. And yeah. now... We've all been through an experience where we kind of know what that feels like. Yeah. Yep. That that and feeling. And when you of, have nothing, or should I say, so little to hold on to. Yeah. What becomes that tradition for you, or what becomes that uh, kind of like that beacon of hope? Yeah. You know what? Absolutely. What becomes that for you when you're in a situation where it's like a post-apocalyptic world, and there's yeah. dragons everywhere, and you can't even see, you can barely see the light of day. Yeah. I mean, not only. Because like you can't come from you can't stay out too long from like the caves or whatever you've yeah. burrowed yourself under. But yeah. also the skies were so gray. Remember because yeah. they were burning everything. Yeah. You were surrounded in smoke. And that was one of the things I loved the most about the movie was the atmosphere. Yes, just me the, too. The atmosphere and the feeling of darkness. The feeling of like it, it. It has that that thing that I really love in like horror movies and, and monster movies where everything always feels kind of gloomy and rainy and kind yeah. of just impending fear is yeah. around everything. And I love that feeling. 
mm-hmm. whenever a movie can evoke that correctly. And Rob Bauman did a great job with that. Yeah. I mean, he did a really, really good job with that. That that movie, like, it. one of the things is, is that, it, that I remember, you know, kind of thinking about when we were watching the movie, and you just called out the 2020 thing and all that, is, you know, the the feeling of it being a risk to go and get food. Yes. Because, you know, they had their... And in the very beginning of the movie, they deal with that, that, you know, they're just trying to get to their garden and the dragons wind up coming and he kind of eviscerating everything. Yes. And it was so tragic. Yes. But then also we were in this situation where going to the store for a year, or almost two years, was a little nerve wracking. Yeah. You know, it's like just going out and going to a Kroger. Yeah. Your next couple of days when you sneezed, you were a little worried. Yeah. And it was it, it, that, so suddenly that fear of this within that movie is very understandable. Yes. And in a way I, that it wasn't to me in 2002 when it came out. You're right. And dare I say, like, Matthew McConaughey's character brought, like, this whole other kind of factor into it, right? Yeah. Because here was a man that wanted to hunt down, like, hunt yeah. the dragons and yeah. kill them all. But for some reason, was living in that world of the dragons, but still was not con- having any consideration yeah. for the major challenges with it. Yeah. Like, it was just like, well, if we all just come together and go yeah. after it, we'll be okay. But they, I mean, they were still more powerful in a yeah. lot of ways. And it reminded me a lot of when we were dealing with COVID, COVID yeah. and how people were just denying that, the yeah. effects of it. Yeah, absolutely. Right? They were denying, like, what it did. They yeah. were denying how it really killed people it was yeah. it was all this denial all the way around and it was leaving people you know in more of a you know kind of flurry than they needed to be you know yeah. and i think his character kind of in a more quiet way did that he did i mean in particular or should i say louder because yeah. he brought it, well, you remember he was recruited was, everyone yeah, yeah. And he was so loud and he was so boisterous but on top of that too he he saw the people that were dying. This is the thing where I think you can make the biggest connection. He saw the people that were either dying or going to die as necessary casualties. Yep, that was necessary for him. And You're right. I was, but then Christian Bale is standing off to the side going, but if we don't have to have them, then why do we? Yeah, so it's like, let's protect them. <laughs> yeah. While versus Matthew McConaughey was like, this is a necessary, this is an end to a, like this is yeah. a means to an end, right? So... But at the same time, I kind of like that dynamic in a way because Matthew McConaughey kind of, you know, poked Christian Bell a little bit to to kind of give him a little bit more courage to fight back a little bit. Because sometimes, like, if you don't have the courage to fight back at all, Mm -hmm. you could just go down without a fight, right? Absolutely. And, and, And I don't know. I don't know about everybody else, but in my kind of, like, head... That's one thing I will never like want myself to do is to I never want to go down without a fight. Yeah. So for me, that was a big thing. It's like I get that we need to protect everybody, mm-hmm. just like I get like why he felt like people needed to he needed to recruit people and they need to fight the dragons. But what I would say is like just I mean, be strategic. Mm-hmm. Kind of see everything, do all your research, see kind of everything, all the advantages you do have that the dragons may not. Yeah. And then go fight for it. But sometimes he was going out there very wild and chaotic. And that's how he, he ended was. up getting a lot of people killed. Yeah. And but I loved at the end how he kind of, Christian Bale was like, if anybody needs to kind of have that courage and kind of fight these dragons, maybe it needs to be me. Yeah. And at the end, that's why he goes out and kind of goes with Matthew McConaughey. I, I think that was one of the fascinating things is that, like, it says a lot about 
all of these things that we've been going through recently and that it taught, you know, by the end of the movie, you really realize that the only way that they did ultimately defeat that looming thing that was over them was finding a way to meet in the middle. Yeah. That's and what in, I mean. Until they yes. found that moment where they could meet in the middle, yep. which unfortunately suffered a lot of casualties, a lot of tragedy and a lot of loss before and, then, and before they could even get yeah. there. And it makes you realize as an audience member, how useless all of those internal debates that led to all that tragedy really were yeah. when all they had to do that entire time was meet in the middle yep. and just go and take care of it. Yep. Cause you remember he took them. Oh, but that was, Oh, <laughs> let's get into that. Like <laughs> I love like the end where yeah. Matthew McCut is like, say whatever you want about his character though, because yeah. at the end, yeah. when he, <laughs> oh, the way he the goes trailer out. shot of him going yes, out, jumping off of the, the little uh, ledge with the axe. Yeah, and even was though amazing. the dragon swallowed him whole, yeah. <laughs> I think that was still, like, badass. It like, was, that was, yeah. That was pretty it was. badass. <laughs> it was. It was amazing. And then all the way down to, you know, the way, you know, after that, that Christian Bale ends up, you know, like, I, I lost the thing, and he has to go back for the yeah. arrow. And everything, it, it, the whole entire thing was just like, it was so intense. It was so well done. It was, yeah. it was great. That was, yes. that was a fantastic thing. It was also the only one that we watched where at the end of it, I was like, this could actually be a TV series. Yeah. I remember you just, you're saying that. Yeah. Like that, that, that I feel like if you had the right director and the right showrunners, you can make a great series out of, out of this movie. Yeah. I, I thought it was fantastic. It was, it was pretty great because that's one of the things, um, that you told me about that was pretty interesting about the dragons. Oh yeah, yeah. The, like the, the so like the fire breathing comes from the so the way that the fire is emitted from like glands mm -hmm. in their mouth was based on real stuff that was around that they had looked at certain animals that had kind of um, anti predator adaptation, mm -hmm. and they looked specifically at. Um, Bombardier beetles and uh, vipers with poisonous glands. And the design that they came up with of those glands that could spit out essentially what we would probably consider like uh, some kind of a lighter fluid base that could then be, you know, have like oxygen attach itself to it and create this deadly fire was something that ended up getting used in a cut and paste kind of way by other dragon other dragons that came up with other special effects houses after that they use it again for um harry potter and the goblet of fire they use it for the deathly howls part one and then the biggest one is game of thrones yeah they literally took that design idea and all the elements of that design and they just did a copy paste job off of reign of fire and are still using it today for all of the dragon i know all the house of the dragons uh, dragons <laughs> uh, use that same exact thing, and it's it's really really cool that that movie started that because that's one of those things I never would have thought of. Yeah, you know, like when I think of Rain of Fire, I even a memory before watching it, what I mainly think of is that shot of Matthew McConaughey. That's yeah. the main thing I think of. Yeah, and I never really thought about like how big of a deal that wound up becoming for other movies yeah, the, how they the, would they, design it. Yeah, yeah the anatomical design of the dragons being so important and you know and i think that's also what's interesting and hilarious at the same time yeah. is the very thing that you admit yeah is also the very thing that kills you yeah you know yeah. because you remember when christian bill kind of when he does the fire and yeah. he kind of throws the arrow into the mouth and then it kind of like 
it's almost like the fire kind of backfires. Yeah. yeah, it implodes. <laughs> and I'm like, that was crazy that the very thing you emit is the very thing that kills you. Yeah. Like, it's pretty dangerous. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But it was it, it was fantastic. That was a great pick yeah. on on uh uh for this whole entire yeah. It that one for... was a little bit of a fun thing to like. It was. Yeah. yeah that was a blast. <laughs> okay, so then next is Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Moving away from disastrous I monsters know. in a traditional kind of way. It may be more of a disaster when it comes to it's the human condition. Disaster of the soul. <laughs> yes. Um, the Shawshank Redemption. Um, it, it was made in 1994. Mm-hmm. It was based on a 1982 Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like um, a novella. I yeah, think. it was a novella, and um, it was directed by Frank Darabont. Yeah. So, what do you think about that one? I love Shawshank. I it's one of those movies that it's. It's almost kind of redundant to say that you love how much you love the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I mean it's just it, it is um, it's a rare case of a first-time filmmaker making a perfect film. I think that you know the we obviously whenever we think of a first-time filmmaker making a perfect film, we think of Citizen Kane, and right along with that, I think a lot about Shawshank. And, okay. And I mean it is a really really perfect movie that. It, obviously, just like with Kane, it has its flaws, yeah. but there are flaws that almost make the movie more special in that way that, you know, it's like they talked about, you know, like a perfect diamond actually has a flaw. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminds me of that. Like, you know, the, the, it is, it's such a perfect film and it's, it's so well done. The performances of Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman they don't need any more praise really because no, they they're, <laughs> they're two of the best performances yes. that I've ever seen put on film yeah especially their dynamic you know there's another movie coming out this year uh with brendan gleason and colin farrell oh, um yeah. the banshees of Sheeran, the yeah. martin mcdonough's new movie that's all about two friends that split apart yeah but it's um it's... <laughs> there's never a real reason that's <laughs> Not... the part I, that's i remember the most about that it's like there's like there's no real reason given well there's None that we know of yet because exactly. we need to see it. But I get off it. of the but, yeah, yeah, off of what we've seen <laughs> of it, it doesn't really feel like there's there's like a real reason for it. And I mean, I guess we have to see the movie to know what that reason yeah. is. But um, it's an it's a uh, Shawshank is another movie that deals with something that I think is so rarely dealt with in films that I really enjoy seeing, which is male friendships. Yeah, and the complexities of male friendships that oftentimes male friendships are are they're they are very odd. They're very complicated. They're wrapped up with a certain amount of of competition and distrust, right along with a certain amount of um, kind of undying trust. Yeah. There's something about male friendships that oftentimes they they become, uh, especially as you go on in life, later mm-hmm. in life, they become a very important fixture in your emotional health, and mm-hmm. it, it's. It's very, very fascinating to me just how well done that was yeah. in this movie. And, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting in that, like, it's a movie that deals with um, male friendships and relationships around a, a forced scenario yeah. of prison. You know, yeah. you don't you don't have the opportunity to walk outside of it. And you also get to see the emotional damage that that creates when you see, you know, the one guy that leaves. And you, you just see how palpable that that feeling of loss is when yeah. he suddenly doesn't have that around him anymore. 
But no, it, it's it's a phenomenal movie, and I I just I absolutely love that movie. This is another movie that it, <laughs> it was in the background my entire life. I can't remember a time when it was in the background. I mean, I was I was three going on four years old when this movie came out. If I wasn't already four, because I I can't remember the exact release date, but I mean, it was ninety four, I think. Yeah, 94. I can't remember exactly when in 94 it came out, but... I was like eight around that time. That's what was so funny. I was about eight years old when mm -hmm. it came out. But it was released in September. Of so I was three going yeah, on so four. Yeah, so you weren't even four yet. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so, like, for me, uh, it, this is a movie that I can't remember a time in my life where this wasn't on in some capacity at, some, yes. at various points. Yeah. But it's another movie where when we sat down and rewatched it, I was like, I know every single scene in this whole entire movie, but I don't know the order. Yeah. And then rewatching it, I was it was like watching every scene that I know fall into place. Yeah. And it was so amazing. Now it wasn't really quite like uh, Twister, mm -hmm. where I was trying to put stuff together. Yeah. But like, or not even trying to, but was just actively putting stuff together. It was like, ah, I didn't realize this happened here. And yeah. But it was a thing where I was just kind of, it was like a puzzle that you're, you've done like three times before and you kind of, your fingers just automatically know where all the pieces go. Yeah. As long as you can see them, right? You yeah. You just kind of slide them over and put them yep. together. And yeah. that's how it felt for me. And I don't know. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Um, it was a great film for me. I mean, I... I saw it on TBS 10,000 times, Same. which every time it came on, I was, yeah. I was like, yeah, let me watch it. And a lot of times that came from either seeing like the end or the beginning, yeah. or just the middle. But more times than not, I, I did get to see the whole entire thing because I would just sit there, especially, you know, how TBS would announce it. It was just like, next up, yeah. it's the Starfink Redemption. And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sitting down for this. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love their, their budding relationship that at the end, blossoms into a flower, right? Yeah. Um, it, rem it actually reminds me of a Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken. Yeah. It just gives this, it's, it reminds me of poetry. Like, yeah. it's like a poem yeah. when I'm it, watching it is very that song. movie. So I really love it in that sense because it makes you think a lot about, like, relationships and friendships and the cutoff of yourself from, some, like, society or you're cut off from like family or you're cut off and when you re-enter into that same mm -hmm. or that world that feels now different like how do you cope yeah yeah because that was a lot of the story towards the middle to the end it's yeah. like how do you cope once you got back out like how do yeah. you cope when you try to re-enter into this world that you never knew because you remember the older gentleman yeah when he first like got out of prison mm -hmm. How, when he got out, he was like, what is this? Because I think before he went in, he didn't even know there were cars or something like that. He was just, wasn't, he was still taken aback yeah. by the new technology. Yeah, the James Whitmore character yes. books. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. was just so, it was so like, it was so disheartening. It was just so sad to kind it of was. like see him just be afraid. And he said yeah. it in the movie. It was, it was like, he was like, I'm tired of being afraid all the time. Yeah. Because yeah. it's such an unknown. Yeah. He 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 was pulled out from what he knew his whole life because I think the story was that he went in when he was like fifteen. He went in yeah. when he was like a kid. Yeah, he did. And he got released in his like sixties or yeah. something like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's a that's a long time to be in prison and to have to re enter 
reintegrate yourself into the world and yeah. just like feel like you belong. Yeah. How can you belong when things are moving so fast? Like yeah. how, you know what I'm saying? And you weren't part of that. Yeah. You weren't part of it. So like, yeah. how do you re? Like how do you do that? Yeah, and and one of the other things that's really interesting to me is that it it, it deals with that, but then it also deals with the fear of being on the inside mm -hmm. and hearing about how scary everything is on the outside. Yeah. And, and that was one of the things that I didn't remember really about the movie. I think because when it was coming on TBS, when I was watching, I was so young mm -hmm. that I didn't really make those connections yes. the same way that I did watching it now. And now yeah. when I watch it, I'm, I'm kind of like, wow, that was incredible. But it, yeah. the, the amount of nuance in the movie is just unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I genuinely love that because if you remember the ending, it does kind of almost end like poetry, right? It does. When you do the last kind of like stands of the like, like it kind of ends like that. Yeah. Because when he's like, when Morgan Freeman read, yeah. when he's like riding on the um, bus and he's taking this and he's looking for directions, how you get here. Yeah. And, he, and then at the end, he finally makes it to the beach. Like, yeah. I just thought that was the most beautiful and most amazing thing I could ever like. Yeah. Why is your name red? Because I'm Irish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to some degree, his name was of an Irish league. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. <laughs> well, one of the things that I... This is like a behind-the-scenes thing that I always thought was really amazing. And it, it it is kind of a testament to Stephen King. Yeah. It is... And I'm not the world's biggest Stephen King fan, but he is a, obviously a very important piece of American culture and American literature. Yeah. Um, but one of the most fascinating things was I, there was a story that he, Frank Darabont went off and wrote uh, um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. Yes. And yes. he took $5,000 from what he made off of that movie and bought the rights to Shawshank because he knew Shawshank was going to be his first film. Okay. Bought the rights and then cut Stephen King the $5,000 check and Stephen King never cashed it because okay. he really had this amazing feeling about Frank Darabont. He was like, this is going to be something special. Yeah. Stephen King, notorious for not liking a lot of his own film adaptations, had some kind of feeling that I think he probably now has with like Mike Flanagan. Yeah. Uh, had some kind of special feeling about Darabont as this young kid that wanted to do something with this novella that nobody really cared too much about, it seemed like. And he never cashed the check. And then the movie came out, it got nominated for all the Oscars, and he framed the check and handed it back to Frank Darabont with a note that says, in case you ever need bail money, Steve. <laughs> and I was like, that was one of the coolest things, because it really is a testament to him as an artist and the, the trust that he put in another artist with his work. Yeah. And that was really, really incredible. Yeah. Awesome. But yeah, that awesome movie, I... I'm like, I, yeah, I don't know. Shawshank yeah. is just one of ones. So you can always put it on. And it's always yep. there for you. It is. It is there. Um, so next up, and our final one, is we have actually another Stephen King <laughs> adaptation. Yes. Um, this one kind of came out of the blue. It, it came out just because we were, it came up just because we were starting to watch horror movies for Halloween. Mm -hmm. um, but also... Uh, still kind of in that search for something that would give us that twister kind of energy mm -hmm. uh, is 1990s Misery, directed mm -hmm. by Rob Reiner, um, written by the great William Goldman. Yep. Uh, even though Rob Reiner kind of heavily altered 
Goldman's script, mm -hmm. uh, specifically the hobbling. In the book, his feet, his foot is, or both of his feet. I, I've never read the book, so I, it, but yeah. like they're cut off. Okay. And Reiner was the one who was, he came up with the idea. So no, he, it needs to be like a hobbling. And William Goldman kind of was like, that was, that's the worst idea. <laughs> like it, like it, it, it doesn't work, you know, like don't do that. And then saw the movie and realized if his feet had been cut off, it would have changed the dynamic with the audience yeah. too much. Yeah. You have to hate Annie Wilkes, but also kind of have a twinge of empathy for her. Not and only that, but I mean, it goes a long way to have um, like hope for the character too, yeah. because if his that was the next thing I bring up. Were like yeah. gone, and you're like, there's no hope, dude. You're not getting out of this. Yeah, and that can be a little. It, it can become very, very yeah. like kind of pessimistic for an audience yeah. in a way that Especially the movie like, didn't really need to be. Yeah, and it, it kind of ends for you at that point. Yeah. In my opinion, it's like, oh, yeah. he can't get nowhere. He's not going nowhere. <laughs> like this is over. This yeah. is done. <laughs> um, of of the movies that we watched, I think this one for me personally had the best cast. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a huge James Caan mm -hmm. guy. Like, I love Jimmy Caan. Um, interesting that he kind of didn't really want to do this role. It, it was really, you know, they were trying to get Warren Beatty to do it. And I don't know why anybody tries to get Warren Beatty to do anything sometimes. <laughs> you know, I, and this is as a self-professed, enormous fan of Beatty. Yeah. I don't really know why people try to get him to do stuff sometimes <laughs> because it seems like it's like written on the wall. It's going to be a no, but, um, Khan kind of didn't want to do the movie because he kind of, in his mind, he was like, this guy's a loser. That was his mentality wow. of that character of Paul was that he was, he was like a, like a loser. He's just stuck in bed the whole time. Like, what is, you know, like, what do I do? And James Khan was a very animated actor. He, mm -hmm. he really, you know, he, brought a lot of physicality. I mean, the guy played sports. He was a really kind of physical guy. You know, we mentioned the Godfather earlier. You go back, you look at Sonny and Sonny's always like doing something, mm -hmm. you know, it's mm -hmm. like, he's a very exuberant guy. Mm -hmm. And, um, or even, you know, my favorite Jimmy Conn movie thief, you know, mm -hmm. he's always kind of active at all points in that movie. Yeah. And in this one, it's like, no, 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 you're, your job is to just sit. And there's like there there's right now on HBO a little introduction of Rob Reiner where he talks about how he would kind of fuck with Jimmy Conn every day. He would sit down next to him and be like, Okay, Jimmy, today you're stuck in bed. And then we'd just get up and leave. Just to kind of <laughs> mess with him. Like that's your motivation for the day. <laughs> and then um, of course the great Kathy Bates. Yes. as Annie Wilkes. Amazing. There's not enough good things in this world that can be said about Kathy Bates in this movie or even in something like Dolores Claiborne yeah. or even or, all the way up to The Office. I was about to say Fried Green Tomatoes. Man. Fried Green Tomatoes. Yeah. And um, it, it's like she's just one of those people where every and then she even did an incredible and um, uh, she was in a couple of the American Horror Stories yeah. and she was amazing. And um she is she is Annie Wilkes, and Annie Wilkes was the character that Stephen King wrote kind of um, a, as a, a sort of relation to his own cocaine addiction mm -hmm. and his addiction to, to cocaine and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how Annie Wilkes was my number one fan. She always loved me, you know, and that was kind of the idea of, like, drugs and alcohol for him. Like, they were his number one fan. They never let him down. They always loved him. Yeah. 
and until they turn on you. until they they turn on you and and it was Which also is what happened yeah, absolutely and you know it was also i mean like the story of stephen king that he wrote cujo and then saw it in a bookstore and had no clue that he wrote that book oh he did not know like that he was in such a fog he remembered coming up with the idea and he remembered how he got the idea but he was in such a like drug-induced fog that he says that he doesn't remember writing that book oh wow okay and um you know but like them and then you also have richard farnsworth as the the sheriff and uh francis sternhagen as his incredible wife yeah one of the best cinematic relationships that i've ever seen on film yes like they were awesome they were amazing there's that spice again yeah <laughs> <laughs> the way they would just go back and forth of everything they were like my favorite they were amazing like people in that movie and it was um i think amazing that that was the comedic relief yeah of the picture yep. was was the two of them the two of them yeah. and it was smart because mm-hmm. you know the way that the sheriff breaks the whole entire case mm-hmm. is so kind of hackneyed and weird yeah but it's so sad as well cuz he ends up he, he ends up getting killed and yeah. it's a shocking moment that yeah. really as an audience member really sits with you because you're really thinking a lot about his wife yeah then i thought he was going to like not only break the case but then catch her yeah and all is well yeah right yeah and it's like no that's not this is misery okay <laughs> <laughs> they remind you this is misery okay yeah. you are watching and you are living in misery <laughs> it's also uh you know, one of the things that I, I loved about the movie is, you know, we met, you know, I mentioned the, you know, his, his little line of like, there's that spice again. Mm-hmm. Some of the lines in this movie and the line readings in this movie are phenomenal mm-hmm. because none of the actors in this movie are playing anything to the audience. Yeah. Everything is normal. Mm-hmm. There's that great moment with Annie Wilkes where she turns around and she says, what was that painting done by that Dago? And he's like the Sistine Chapel. And it's like... <laughs> That line could very easily be played for, oh, look, this is who Annie Wilkes really is. Mm-hmm. And it says, like, no, it's just, this is just what rolls off the tongue. This is just how she yeah. presents herself and talks, and this is how she's going to do it. That line is so hilarious. Yeah. And they give you no time to laugh and recover <laughs> because it's just a real moment. And it's hilarious for all the wrong. It's hilarious because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing that I really loved about that performance and and about the way that they wrote the script is that so many of the things that are funny they don't actually give you the time no because you know why i think they always intended which even if you don't intend it it's so beautifully written anyway yeah that it makes it awkward and uncomfortable because she would literally have so many highs and lows all in one like all in one moment that yeah. you would want to laugh and then when she was changed really quickly you're like oh boy yeah like that it made you like step away from yep. the laughter even though it was funny yeah a- absolutely <laughs> and and one of the the things that i really loved about the movie too on top of that was ju- just the sense of how much you can accomplish with just one person stuck in a house yeah you know when she would leave there's that scene where you know she's uh she wants him to start typing she brings this expensive paper mm-hmm and she's like, you know, 
flabbergasted that he would say, go and get another paper because mine can smudge, because this one can smudge. Yeah, but he would know he's a writer. He would know he's a writer. On top of that, though, fascinating thing about typewriters, most paper Mm -hmm. will smudge. I mean, but he did it. To get her out of the house. And it was very, very smart. Yeah, because she wouldn't know. No. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things I loved is that the second she leaves the house, you are on pins and needles while he's going through that house. Yeah. Doing all that stuff. And it was so smart the moment that, that they withhold it for so long that when he knocks over the penguin mm-hmm. and he puts it back mm-hmm. and the whole audience is like, <gasps> yeah, he put it you, back the wrong way. Yeah, not only that, but you thought he was going to break it. That's what I first thought. Yeah. And then you realize when he put it back the wrong way, I'm like, she's going to find out. She's yeah. going to know. Because you, you can tell she's so meticulous about everything. Yeah. She noticed those subtle little details like that. So I knew that that was going to happen. And, and when that happens, there's that kind of thing of like you're waiting for it. You're waiting for her to come home. And instead they let like a whole yeah. like 40 minutes go by. I was with sweating no with reference. him. Because it, when he got back, he was sweating. It creates this underlying tension with you <laughs> for the rest of the movie where you're just like, I know she's going to mention it. I know she's going to mention that penguin. I know she's going to mention that penguin. And she doesn't. She doesn't. And when she finally does, it hurts so bad. Yeah, because the whole time he thought he had it in the bag. And she just, she literally ripped open that bag. Yeah. She literally was like, nope. Done. (laughs) Yep. I noticed. (laughs) Also, um, her pronunciation of Don Perignon. Oh, that was so. Don Perignon. Yes. (laughs) That was so funny. I was like, what? At first, I didn't even realize what she was trying to say. You yeah. had this. But I was like, what is she trying to say? <laughs> you were like, Don Perignon. I was like, oh, yeah. she was misspe- she was missaying that? Yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> so it was hilarious. And it, it was it was really, really fascinating. Also, the, the thing about the single cigarette is something from Stephen King's life. Mm-hmm. And Brian Kobelman tells a story that he met Stephen King and Stephen King would they were playing cards one time. Stephen King had like a one cigarette that was sitting on the table. Yeah. They were like, what's up? And he was like, no, I, I quit smoking and I, I only have like four cigarettes mm-hmm. in like a day. And so like, I, I really like, I plan for those moments. And it's almost like you see that level of control that it makes sense why he's so prolific with that level of control. Mm-hmm. And, that he was just waiting for that one moment where he was finally going to step outside and have that cigarette. And it's, that was a real thing with Paul. Yeah. And I was like, that was a really cool detail. Awesome. But um, Misery, great movie. Real quick, favorite Stephen King adaptation? Because mm. we've watched a lot of Stephen King movies yeah, in I... the past few years. With There was like this influx of them again, which yeah. ha- it seems to happen every 15 years or so. Yeah, and I think I can tell you like my top three, but mm-hmm. I'll tell you the one that I actually, I think kind of like just kind of imprinted on me the most, but it was, to me, it's Carrie, yep. Pet Cemetery, and yeah. the original It. Yeah, the, the TV. Yeah, the TV Carrie, one, yeah. not the one that just recently came out. Yeah. But those three were the ones that, I, that imprinted on me the most, but the one I think that really still carries over to that day to this day is it the tv version of with tim curry in it yeah i don't know why but i was so hooked onto that one yeah. like every time it came on i needed to rewatch it over and over and over again yeah so i think it was that one out of all of them that's really interesting because yeah the i don't really know how i feel about that movie if i saw it now i liked it when it came out but i don't have um 
Well, the second was, part is always a little hard to get into, even with this remake mm-hmm. that came out. Like yeah. to me, that the second one was when they're adults. Yeah, that yeah. one was hard to get into a little more than the first one. I think one of the things that is so interesting about King is that he's very adept at writing children. Mm-hmm. And because for me, one of my favorites is Stand by Me. Yeah, and it, it's like he he has such a great grasp on writing kids. Yeah, that. Yeah, with it for me too, it was a little hard. Oh man, getting yeah, into you the... just reminded me of that. Stand by me. Yeah. I always forget that that was Stephen King's. Like, it's interesting when you think about the non horror stuff that he's done yeah. and how incredible it's been, especially in its adaptations. Yeah. Stand by me, Shawshank, which we just talked about, yep. and and the Green Mile. Yeah. You know, those are all things that you watch and you're kind of like, wow, this stuff is great. Yeah. And then it, the end credits come up and it's like based on a novel or short story by Stephen King and you're like oh wow (laughs) (laughs) I forgot that and when Richard Dreyfuss is like the one that was like writing the story yeah Richard Dreyfuss is writing the story for the whole movie yeah Yeah. I think he was the one because he ended up being one of the kids that grew up yeah and he was the one narrating the story I have one good Richard Dreyfuss story because I met him once okay and when I met him I asked him about Jaws and he said his favorite and I specifically about Robert Shaw because at the time I was obsessed with Robert Shaw and I asked him about working with Robert Shaw. He said, Robert Shaw's craziest day on set was we all got sick at some point <laughs> on that boat. He said, Robert Shaw was just dying. It's the day when he, uh, it, it's the scene where he sits up and he yells at everybody and mm-hmm. tells them. And funny, I think there's a documentary where he tells the story also, but he, he said that um, uh, Robert Shaw that day was so sick and it's the you know robert shaw gets up and he's like you know okay get the get the lines up there hooper <laughs> and he said that he had this one line and steve, steve spielberg walked over and was like can you do the line and he was like i can do the fucking line he was just irritated yeah. that you know he was still there they call action and robert shaw was like sweating and puking and a mess and all of a sudden he just saw this energy just come out of him he stood up he did the line it's the take this in the movie and then the second they called cut, he just completely collapsed. <laughs> and they were like, we're taking him back. Yeah. Because he was so, so sick. Yeah. And Richard Dreyfuss was like, I've never seen an actor do that on any other set I've ever been on. Oh, that's awesome. And it was really, really cool. Yeah. But um, uh, Stand By Me was definitely one of mine. I mean, another one for me, of course, is The Mist. Yeah. Also done by Frank Darabont. Okay. I absolutely adore that movie. And then um, I really love the Toby Hooper Salem's Lot. That oh. that was the TV one mm-hmm. that I really got into was yeah. Salem's Lot, and um, probably because it was a creepy looking vampire and that was attractive <laughs> to me. And then um, also one of his that nobody talks about with Chris Walken, uh, The Dead Zone. People oh, often Zone. attribute that to that was another kind of it's sort of a horror movie, sort of not, but um, that was another one that everybody really attributes to David Cronenberg. Okay. And kind of forgets that, oh, yeah, it's this Stephen King, King thing. Okay. But that's a, another great, great film. But, um, yeah. So, but we ultimately didn't really find the twister moment <laughs> no, <laughs> after I mean, all of this. we came close. We came close. A couple of the movies, but you know what I would say? You're Maybe you're right, because at the end of the day, I think the ones that we really did enjoy had its own vibe. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, you're right. We never really felt the Twister one it, because every one we did watch, either we liked it or we didn't. But even the ones we liked, they just had their own kind of... Yeah. yeah. It, it took us back to, there was a period in from, you know, through the, the 90s and into the early 2000s where studio films were really, really well crafted. Yeah. 
and it kind of just took us back into that that it was like all of these movies we talked about except for Shawshank Shawshank was kind of a sleeper hit yeah but all of the other movies we talked about were major major blockbusters yeah and um even open water was to a degree a blockbuster. Uh, just, well, I don't know if Rain of Fire was. It, Rain of Fire was also it like a real, It was yeah. mixed. They said it didn't get, it wasn't received very well, okay. but I enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, you, I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I enjoyed it, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, but these were still, these were major releases. Yeah. You know, I mean, even Open Water, which is a completely independent movie, yeah. got picked up and got a, a pretty decent, sizable release. I mean, I, I found out about the movie because that was when, um, uh, Ebert and Roper were still a thing. Yeah. And they reviewed it. And that's mm-hmm. how I found out about it was they gave it two thumbs up and I was like, oh wow, like I, I gotta check this out. Yeah. They, they talked about it very favorably and then that made me want to go and see it and I did. But like there was just this period of well made mm-hmm. studio pictures. And even Lake Placid for all of my issues <laughs> with it was still a it was still a well crafted, well directed movie. Yeah. And so like, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Awesome. <laughs> Up next, we got our uh, our throwback recommendation. Then we'll be talking about our next episode. Yeah. All right, it's throwback recommendation time. Um, general idea of this is to find a movie that predates 1980, the year 1980, and to make a recommendation that the other person doesn't know but for this one we actually get to start out with the one that i mentioned last time which was current echo yeah the uh 1968 movie directed by uh Kenneth shendo and um the last time i very um uh very badly tried to dance around the aspect of a black cat current echo actually translates to black cat as you saw when we started mm-hmm. watching the movie yeah um but you saw it now yeah how did you feel about it? I thought it was amazing. It was awesome. Like, yeah. And there were so many things that I could actually bring into my own life and kind of see. It was like, yeah, it's like a mirror kind of almost looking back at me. Yeah. Which is really weird to say that because you think I would have no relation to this, like, Japanese horror. But, like, yeah. it, it was, like, crazy because I was like, oh, my goodness. Because it was all about, like, the soul. and. Yeah when he went on this fast and yeah. how he's like, there was like this like testing and yeah. and temptation of things and yeah. how he gave into some of them. And, yeah. and in the end it was his like, it was his defeat. So it was yeah. kind of weird. It was yeah. like, I could yeah. relate to it so much. I was yeah. like, Whoa. Yeah. Okay. I didn't expect that. Yeah. It's, it was surprising. It's a beautiful film. I mean, and it, it's, um, it's kind of incredible when you actually watch it and it's, you realize it's a little bit less of an over movie and a little bit more of a tragedy. Yeah. And the, it, um, the kind of basis of the story is that this uh, young woman and her mother are raped and murdered mm-hmm. and then their souls wind up kind of going into a... Yeah, but only because they they sold their soul. They, they made a deal mm-hmm. with a, a, an, a demon of hatred mm-hmm. and they wound up uh, with their souls inside of a black cat each, you know, mm-hmm. and the, um, they wound up... Uh, they, they come back as evil spirits and start claiming the lives of ruthless samurai only to have the wife of the, the young woman and the son of the mother mm-hmm. show back up into their lives. Yep. 
and um, it's just an incredible, incredible story. It's and it's uh, an odd thing that it's uh, also a weirdly sexy movie. Yeah, it is. And that was the thing. It's that, like enticing. <laughs> <laughs> it's enticing, and then, like the the actors that they got on there are, are unbelievably attractive. Oh yeah, they're amazing. And they, it, it was like one of those things that the first time that I saw this movie, I didn't expect that. Yeah. I, it was, I expected a very, um, a movie a little bit closer to another Japanese horror film called Onibaba, mm -hmm. which is a really freaky movie about a girl and her mother who are in the middle of this field and they're killing off samurai and the girl is, is trying to escape and her mother keeps dressing up as a demon. Mm -hmm. to keep her in place and mm -hmm. i kind of expected that yeah. when i watched current echo and i i didn't get it instead i got this beautiful tragedy that is weirdly sexy yeah <laughs> it was i mean because how else do how else can you be luring you yeah. know if you're not like sexy and attractive and, yeah like how else can you be you know how yeah. can you like lure somebody in yeah you know? but that, i mean it was it was very surprising because i could relate to it so much because mm -hmm of that journey that he was taking yeah that he was on yeah and i mean there was a lot of things that that he actually discerned very early on yeah but even with that discernment he still gave in to a lot of things yeah so yeah. that part was interesting i yeah. was like wow i mean sometimes you can do the right you can all you always have the like the right intentions right yeah but sometimes still, things can still go wrong, even with the right intentions, Absolutely. and that's what that reminded me of. Yeah, yeah, it was a a, um, a movie I, I still highly recommend if uh, uh, people listening haven't seen it. I still highly recommend it. And, um, I got to see it at the Plaza Theater on thirty five millimeter. I think I mentioned last time, and mm -hmm. the print was unbelievably gorgeous, and it mm -hmm. was it was a really really amazing experience. And, but even experiencing this moving this movie at at home as you did, I mean it's still it just it translates so well. It does. It's it a, really does. It's a, a a great movie. So now up next we got your recommendation. Yes, my pick is Shadows. It was written and directed by John Cassavetes, yeah. um, in nineteen fifty nine. Originally made in nineteen fifty seven, and then and was shown to an audience in nineteen fifty eight. Yeah, the uh, so Cassavetes Shadows is a movie I've seen, but it's the movie of his I've seen the least. Okay. Out of all of his films, I, that one and um, Opening Night are yeah. the two of his that I've. Um, in terms of the, the ones that got released on Criterion, I mean, he has other films that he's made like Mini and Moskowitz. I've only seen once or twice, but mm -hmm. um, of his films, that's the one that I've definitely seen the least. But it's a, uh, I'm really excited to go back to that one. That's yeah. a really really good film. Okay. So I'm, I'm excited to go back to that one. Then yeah, we'll talk about it on the next one. Yep, and that's our throwback. Awesome. All right, so that was uh, Twister yeah. and uh, six other <laughs> movies that we went through uh, in our search for the Twister feeling. Yeah. Which I guess like one of the, the things I would say in terms of like kind of final thoughts of all of it was that we, we kind of went on it searching for a certain level of nostalgia. But it's kind of the, the takeaway that I had is that I miss really good studio-made pictures. Yeah. That's really what I miss. Is I, I, like, more so than 
like having like nostalgia for like you know, this was a better time or anything yeah. like that. No, it was just like these were just really good studio movies. Yeah, that were made with a certain level of craft and attention. Yeah, and it just felt like they were not just products. It yeah. felt like that was part of what they were. You know, and the cool part about that too was, you know, like I said, and we don't hate the. You know, the Marvel and the DC films and stuff like that, all the For superhero sure. movies. But at the same time, I remember a time where there was so much diversity. Yeah. And what you could pick to watch that, yeah. like, like, Marvel was not, like, taking over yeah. every, like, yeah. you know what I mean? It wasn't taking over everything. Yeah. So there was still a lot of movies you could also choose from. Yeah. But that, that's what also made to me the Marvel and the DC films. I think that made them gems. Yeah. But they're no longer gems. Like yeah. now you can find yeah. them any and everywhere because. Yeah, because it's just kind of oversaturated yeah, now. Yeah, oversaturated. Yeah. And then even within, you know, I guess what people consider to be like, you know, grown up movies or whatever, you know, whatever people mm-hmm. want to call them, you know, like essentially what used to be movies like Misery or Shawshank Redemption, essentially R rated. Yeah. You know, kind of movies that were made more for the parents than for the kids. Yeah. Even in terms of thinking about those, those are mostly now gone to being HBO series or just series television in general. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a limited series or, you know, like a a, um, a Breaking Bad type of thing, which mm-hmm. I absolutely adore Breaking Bad. Yes. But, you know, in 1982, that would have been a movie, maybe three movies. Yeah. You know, and like it would have been something that we will look back on as like the Walter White trilogy. (laughs) Charles Bronson or something. (laughs) Um, But, you know, now it's like most of that stuff has kind of migrated over to television and it's kind of this thing of like, oh, well, that's where we're going to put that stuff now. There's a question to (laughs) now like TV. on some levels I like a lot of that stuff because mm-hmm. I really enjoyed Mayor of Easttown, which we watched. Oh yeah, and, that was great. Um, I I liked aspects of White Lotus. Mm-hmm. And I, I really liked We Own the City, and like I I like all of that stuff. But like at the same time, sometimes I know I definitely had this feeling of Mayor of Easttown, like, and definitely had this feeling of White Lotus. Sometimes it also feels padded out mm-hmm. to the point where I'm like, you know, this would have been a really good three hour movie. Yeah. This would have been a great three hour movie. Yeah. It, you have six hours of it. Yeah. <laughs> so there's those three those three to five extra hours yeah. that you have to deal with. You have to get through all this other stuff to really yeah. get to the good parts because yeah. they're so spread out. They are. And I think that's one of the things that I I found like going back to stuff is I was like, Oh yeah, there was just like this period of filmmaking where we just had you know, there was something for everybody at the theater mm-hmm. to a degree. Yeah. You know, to a degree, there was something for everybody at the theater. Mm-hmm. You had a movie like Misery or a movie like Shawshank or a movie like Twister. And you, you had a kind of a wide array of things. Like you said, there was more diversity yeah. in what you could find. And that made it really exciting when Tim Burton's Batman came out. Mm-hmm. You were like, whoa, I didn't know they could do this. Or, you know, for me especially, I remember the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. Yeah. And then the the first Brian Singer X Men, yeah, those were exciting movies to me yeah. because 
you weren't going to get anything else like that anytime soon. No, that's what I mean. So that at that time, mm-hmm. they were gems. Yeah. Because they can't. They were so far in between that that's yeah. what made them gems. Yeah. And now it's just like, no, they're no longer gems. Yeah. Like, they're accessible everywhere and anywhere. So. Yeah. And, you know, even looking at some, like, you know, when the first Avengers happened, that was really exciting because I'd never seen that happen on the big screen before. Mm-hmm. I'd only ever seen what happened there in comic books and on TV. Yeah. So all of a sudden seeing it happen on the big screen was really wild and really cool. Yeah. By the fifth, sixth, seventh time, it was just kind of like I'm watching <laughs> TV at the theater now. But like, you yeah. know, that's just my opinion on it. But and like, then you have the television versions of everything. Yeah. Which so, I haven't really dove into at all. I mean, I've kept up with a few. Yeah. And when I say few, I mean like one or two. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's it's definitely a thing That's where it's... That's the name of the game. What is that? <laughs> that song? <laughs> but it's like, it's one of those things where I think that was kind of my big takeaway with it. Was like, yeah. It was less that I was going back looking for nostalgia in the sense of like oh this this time that i remember yeah. being so much better and more just like ah oh, man i remember when studio movies used to be really good because yeah. these were all block you know like i mean shawshank wasn't a blockbuster but like these were all big budget movies that were made for large audiences yeah and these were not independent films or movies that were you know yeah. kind of like made for a selective audience or for the art house crowd these yeah. were big big movies yeah and it's, it's not like, you know, we just saw, like, on the last one, I saw The Devil mm-hmm. or Them. Those were made for a very small audience. Mm-hmm. And, like, this was not the case with these movies. These yeah. were these were blockbuster movies. Yeah. And it's a little crazy when I think about the fact that it's almost... Actually, I think this year was kind of the first year where I feel like it could almost happen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost weird thinking about something like Misery being a, a blockbuster. Yeah. But, like, hopefully we can get back to that because this year also we've had some interesting stuff coming up. So maybe maybe that door is opening back up and maybe everybody's feeling a little fatigued with all of say, the stuff that we've been getting for the past few years. You led right into what I was going <laughs> to say is that sometimes you just have to really get tired of something to want something new. Like, yeah. you just really have to get tired of it. Yeah. So I guess when people get tired of it, we can get something new. Yeah. And speaking of something new, yeah. <laughs> so for our next episode, uh, do you want to introduce kind of what our next episode is going to be about? Yes, it is called Licorice Pizza and all those other kids. Yeah. So we'll be diving into like a, a lot of like coming of age stories, yeah. like a lot of movies that really shaped us now and as like kids, like yeah. watching those different things that really shaped us. So. Absolutely. And, uh, of course, the the main movie that is going to be kind of the, the center of our focus is going to be Licorice Pizza. Yeah. Which will be a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that movie. Yeah. I I, um, I don't know. I don't really know where it stands on my P.T. Anderson rankings, but I like it a lot. And I yeah. can't wait to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited for that. I mean, it's cool that he, he's, he even has a ranking in your... Yeah. Like among your list of movies, yeah, right? Yeah. So I mean, because he has definitely have a few in mind. Yeah. So. Yeah, for yeah. sure.